Well, here we are, back for another week of Herstory on the Rocks. It is, uh, it's amazing. I can't yes. believe we keep making it back here. <laughs> uh, me neither, especially because you started school this week. I did, and I'm super proud of myself. I'm back in middle school. I'm so excited. I'm so happy. Ugh, that's so great. Um, I'm really it, happy for you. It feels good, and I just really like it. Good. <laughs> but we are we are here and we're gonna have a great week. I mm-hmm. think this is gonna be a little bit of a longer episode, so you might have to break this up into like two, but we'll summarize as best we can. Yeah, it'll be good. Yeah. Uh yeah, it will be a long episode, but that's fine. Um, because we're gonna be talking about exactly what we're here to talk about on Herstory. On the rocks with Katie and Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. And we're not playing any games tonight. No games. We're getting (laughs) right into it because it's going to be an intense episode. Uh Uh, And keep in mind, during this whole episode, we are drinking every second of the time. All of the time (laughs) until our drinks run out and then we start filling them back up. Yes. It's exactly. traumatic on Friday mornings sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. Sometimes I wake up and I'm totally fine and I don't get it. Yeah. And other times it's like I feel like I was run over with a truck. Yeah. And it's like I can't breathe. Yeah. At work. So. <laughs> so if you can't breathe at work, don't listen to this show. No, please don't. Call 911 <laughs> or have someone near you call it for them. Yeah. Immediately. Or get out your EpiPen or your inhaler. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. Um, but in case you're having an asthma attack, uh, you're busy. Yeah, that's a really busy <laughs> thing for you to be doing. Um, so you're busy on your phone calling 911, mm-hmm. so you can't stop and Google what these women look like. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to describe them for you so you can have a picture in your mind while we're telling their story. We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what does she look like? I'm doing the famous author Amy Tan. She is a Chinese-American woman who is like just petite and has really excellent facial bone Mm -hmm. structure. Traditionally, she wears her hair black and in a very short bob with micro bangs Mm. uh and although she's had her hair longer at different points in her life that's very rare usually it's like short and curled under really really um up high almost near her cheekbones now it's almost down near her jaw okay um and she's almost always in a signature red lip and a large statement necklace and that's what amy tan looks like she's an icon love it icon (laughs) Who are you doing and what does she look like? Another icon. <laughs> Another icon. I am doing Natalie Wood. Natalie Wood. <laughs> Who uh, <laughs> Miss Celine thinks looks like Lorelai Gilmore. Right. Uh, I would disagree. Mm-hmm. I don't really think they look alike much at all. <laughs> no. And then she tells Rory that she looks like, like Elizabeth Taylor. No, it's Audrey Hepburn. Oh, Audrey Hepburn. Yeah, she Damn says it. Audrey I thought it was Hepburn. <laughs> so Natalie Wood, though, was... Like Lorelai Gilmore, one of the most beautiful women in Hollywood. (laughs) She had dark brown hair that was typically curled in some fashion. She had very large, deep, dark eyes that her sister described as brown velvet. And she had a huge smile framed by deep laugh lines. She was petite with a tiny little waist and long, lean arms. She loved an eyeliner and giving some side eye. (laughs) I feel like most of the... 
big photos of her, she's like not looking straight on. And maybe she didn't like the way she looked looking straight on. Probably not. Cause like her eyes are so big that when she's looking to the side or like up or down, like you can see so much of the white, like her eyes are so big. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and that's what she looks like. That's not a problem I have. No, not at all. (laughs) Oh, goodness. So do you want to know what you're about to enjoy? Yes, it looks so refreshing on this hot summer evening. It is, like, solidly yellow. (laughs) It's crazy. So this is literally called Her Story, but not like our show, Her Story, like two separate words. Her Story. (laughs) And it is 0.75 parts elderflower liqueur. 1.5 parts green tea, five parts lemon juice, one part gin, and then I have um, like a section of my mint plant. Like I (laughs) broke off sections of it for garnish and put it in the drink. So Cheers. cheers. I actually love this. It's really good. I thought the lemon was going to be way too much. No, I think it's delightful. Yeah, mm. it's really it's, nice. And it's really refreshing. Like, I think that, like like you were saying, like the green tea and the elderflower, like really soften all the lemon. It tastes really, really good. I can't taste any of the mint, but I also didn't shake it in there. It was mm-hmm. just to make it look pretty, which it does. Yeah. <laughs> so that's nice. Love it. All right. So... Tell me what you know about Amy Tan, or I guess what you did know before we were talking in the kitchen. <laughs> so all the only thing that I knew about her was that she wrote the Joy Luck Club. Yeah. That was the only thing. And I really don't know much more, but I know that some crazy things happened to her. Yeah. So now I just kind of want to get right into the story because I want to know what what's going on with Amy. Amy has had a nuts, nuts life. Um... So I want to talk about my sources. I watched the documentary, which is on, it started on PBS, but it's now on Netflix. So if you'd like to watch it, I did not include all of the information because it was just literally impossible. Mm -hmm. Um, It's called Unintended Memoir. So Hmm. please watch that free on Netflix if you pay for Netflix. (laughs) I listened to (laughs) Wikipedia and then... There was a Ted Ed video on the Joy Luck Club because it is on my reading list, but I have not read the Joy Luck Club and I'm really embarrassed about it and I'm not ready to talk about it. And I just huge, massively huge trigger warning for mental health issues on this episode. So if you have struggled with you or somebody in your life wanting um, to take their own life or you've struggled with depression. Um, this is going to be just a really hard one to listen to. Oh, and also rape. You're not, it's going to be hard. Yeah. I mean, that's and actually before same we even get Natalie to Wood. Ju- this, is the same for her too. So, so this is a rough, it's going to be a rough episode. So if you're in a bad, even if like, that's not something you've struggled with, if you're in a bad emotional space, just know that like you can take some time before you listen uh, to this episode. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this is a story about Amy Tan, but if you know anything about Amy Tan, which I didn't until this week, (laughs) it's actually about Amy Tan and her mom. Mm. Amy was born in Oakland, California on February, uh, let me look at the horoscope, 19th. Um, She is the second of three children, and her parents were Chinese immigrants to the United States. Her dad was John, and her mom was Daisy. 
John, her dad, was the oldest of 12. And because of that, he was the most reliable. Um, but not because of that. He also happened to be the most handsome of his siblings. And he was the best at speaking English of his siblings. Her dad was a Baptist minister, but he was also an electrical engineer. Mm. Um, and he was a full-time minister at one point, but it wasn't enough money to keep the family afloat. So yeah. he was a substitute preacher on the weekends and then an engineer during the week. Okay. Right. Mom was a great pianist, but had a lot of mental health problems that we're mm. going to talk about. Both parents worked. Dad worked seven days a week trying to make it as an immigrant in California in this country. Yeah. Like it is hard. Both parents wanted their three kids to be fully immersed in the United States. So when you listen to Amy and her younger brother talk in interviews, they have literally zero accent. Yeah. Like they, their parents were very much like, we want you to fully immerse like melting pot America, the way that we used to look at assimilation, Mm -hmm. the way they grew up. Um, they would meet other people in California that were similar to them. Um, sometimes in their neighborhood, they would find people from China and more specifically people from Shanghai, which her mom was from. And this group of people started to have dinner together once a week and they became an extended family. It was mostly for the parents, a stock investment group. They started by trying to figure out how to make more money in their current situation. So they would discuss stocks and who to invest with and where to pull money out. But then afterwards they would have dinner and they would play games. The women would play my Mojong and the men would play, um, or sorry, Mahjong and the men would play cards. And then the kids would just like run around and get to stay up late. That's so funny because, okay, so this is my secret thing to tell. I started the joy luck club and did not finish it, but that is the whole front of the book. So I guess that's a very, this is her story. The name of this group was the Joy Luck Club. So the Joy Luck Club is a fictional story Mm -hmm. and we're not really there yet. But the most recent memoir or the the most recent documentary that came out is called Unintended Memoir because all of her fiction books are really the story of her life. You know, it's funny. That kind of reminds me, like we talked about P.L. Travers a bit last week when we talked about Mary Poppins and like Mm -hmm. the same thing kind of happened to her. Yeah. She like wrote the character of Mary Poppins and then went to write about her aunt and was like, oh shit, they're the same person. Like didn't realize that she's basing Mary Poppins off of her aunt. Exactly. That's very interesting. And when she's been interviewed about it, she said she believes all fiction writers put in people and experiences from their real life. Yeah. It just depends on how much. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, so to her, the Joy Luck Club, and she did not want to name the book the Joy Luck Club. That was like editors mm. that were like, no, this is the name that's going to pull it off the shelves. Oh, interesting. Yeah. She was like, no, that's just something my family does. Like, she uh, just didn't get it. Sorry okay. to jump ahead. No. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> There's so much about that book. We will get there. So Daisy, her mom, was a fast-talking Bitfire. She gave big advice and did not sugarcoat things to her daughter. <laughs> she would say, don't let anyone ever tell you what to do. Don't let people talk down to you. Don't let people force you to get married or to have kids. And if you get married, make sure you have a job. So if you need to leave him, you can. Her mom was very, very into making sure her daughter could be independent. But Amy, like many immigrant 
Um, second generation immigrant children had lunchbox anxiety. Thank you, Olivia, for that mm-hmm. term. Like on her birthday, she would have these like minor anxiety attacks at school, just hoping her mom would bring in cupcakes and not oh. some like Shanghai dish. Like uh-huh. she would be so embarrassed. That's so interesting too, since like they want their children to be very American, right? But I guess also like that's what you that's cook. Just what she cooks, right? That's really interesting. It is. So her older brother Peter. Amy's older brother, Peter, was amazing, and Amy felt constantly compared to this older brother. Mm. He was definitely her father's favorite. There were really high expectations put on her. She says very regularly in interviews, I was supposed to be a doctor and a concert pianist on the weekends, and that was what my family expected. Oh, my God. And there is no other answer. Um, Her mom told her that... She could believe that she could be anything that she wanted as long as it's what her mom wanted. <laughs> like Amy had the like a very strict uh, life growing up. Amy hated the piano. Um, she said it was like a little slave machine. She went to play in church one week for like a debut concert and she was playing this um, classical piece, but she kept messing up and like starting over. And then eventually the congregation just like clapped her off stage. And in the car, she said to her mom, I don't want to do this anymore. And her mom said, okay, fine. Don't play anymore. Don't take my advice. Maybe you're better off without my advice. Maybe you're better off with me dead. Whoa. Whoa. Amy's mother had a very, very serious mental health problem that was untreated. She threatened and attempted suicide regularly through Amy's entire life. It is a very different kind of pressure to have a demanding mom and then to have a mom that is saying, if you don't think the way I want you to think, I may as well kill myself. And that is what Amy's mom was doing to her her entire life. One Sunday was Amy's birthday and the family went to church and her mom decided to stay home and Amy thought she'd be coming home to a cake, but instead she came home to the house torn apart and things thrown everywhere. One time her parents were fighting in the car and her mom opened the door and tried to jump out and her father had to slam on the brakes. This is with all the kids in the back. So Amy began writing journals and letters to herself as a confidant to help herself process and to heal. Ultimately, she wanted to be an artist, but knew her parents would totally disapprove. And um, she had no idea that you could have a career in writing. Mm -hmm. Like, that wasn't a thing. When Amy was 15, her older brother, who she admired and she was always compared to, was diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor. (gasps) What? The family prayed daily. But obviously, he would end up hospitalized. Six months later... Amy's father was diagnosed with the same thing. What? Oh, my God. Her dad is sick. Her brother is sick. Guys, this doesn't get easier. And then a minister comes to her house uh, to talk to Amy because she had been caught reading The Catcher in the Rye. Caught. Caught. Because it's a bad book. And he said to her in her bedroom, uh, that this, her reading The Catcher in the Rye, would hurt her father more than his brain tumor. Oh, my God. So she started to cry. Um, but to make her not cry, he started to tickle her. And then he oh 
laid her down and started to tickle her more, even under her dress. And when he was done, he said, you have a dirty mind and no one will ever believe you. And then her dad and brother died like two weeks apart. The fuck? (laughs) So Amy's really going through some shit. That's awful. I know. Back to back to back. Oh, I hate that. So um, now she is left with a mother who has very serious mental health concerns and a little brother. And that's it. After her dad dies, her mom gives away their furniture and their clothes and goes, we're moving to the Netherlands because they have clean air air there and we're not going to get brain tumors. Okay. So they get on a boat, they bop around, they have nowhere to sleep, and they end up in Switzerland. And they are living on Lake Geneva in Switzerland. Amy is an angry teenage girl. She is dating she's hanging out with other rich girls that wear makeup they're not rich she's just hanging out with rich girls um she starts smoking she's doing anything that to piss her mom off and then one day her mom comes into her bedroom with a cleaver and is like i'm gonna kill you my god and then i'm gonna kill your brother and then i'm gonna kill myself and we can all be with your dad and brother again oh my god And she has to, like, she says she, like, just told her mom, I want to live, and then kind of, like, blacked out. Like, she doesn't know. Holy fuck. What's happening. (sighs) Amy's life is a serious situation. So Amy finds out. She's in high school the whole time. She's in Switzerland. She finds out she can graduate early, and she's going to do this to leave her mother's home. And she did. Um, but she found herself back in the U S and her mom and brother find themselves back in the U S. So they were only in Europe from, for a total of two to three years. Okay. So Amy is in college. She's on this blind date at a party. Um, and she meets this guy named Lou. Now Amy's mom was really worried about her being dependent on a man. Um, but Amy meets this guy named Lou. He's super great. Lou um, and her, it's not love at first sight, but she does drop out of the college program she's in and move back to California so they can go to college together. And her and her mom don't talk for six months after that because she's just like, I told you not to be dependent on a man. He was just mellow and kind and exactly what Amy needed. But Lou's parents did not like Amy. Lou said in the documentary, my parents were not outwardly racist. um, And this was during the Vietnam War. So they were worried about what other families would think of them if I married an Asian woman. And there's a in the movie and in the book, The Joy Luck Club, there's like this really incredible scene where these white parents are talking to like the Amy character And they're like, you know, we just don't think, like, you should date. This might, like, look bad for his career because everything that's going on in Vietnam. And she goes, yeah, but I'm American. Right. I'm American. Like, I don't know how else to say it to you. Right. She's American. And also, it's like, I'm Asian, but I'm not Vietnamese either. Mm -hmm. Like, (laughs) right. Yeah. I'm Chinese American, but like I'm not any of the things that you're worried about. Right. Like it's so I just I the scene in the movie is really really good and uncomfortable and I just find that interesting that it's a very similar well not interesting it's obvious because Amy just literally only wrote about her life. And also like it 
I feel like that happens to so many uh, people who enter, like, especially, like, and I think this is changing now, hopefully, but, mm-hmm. like, mixed relationships, whether it be religion or race or whatever, but it's, like, yeah, like, whoever the, like, the minority in the relationship mm-hmm. is, it's always, like, well, you understand, right? Like, you know, yeah. we wouldn't want our son to be with you, and you're, like, actually, I don't understand. You're, like, why is that what you think of me? Why is that, <laughs> like, why are you generalizing everyone who's like me? Like, right. It's just frustrating that it's always put on the per- the person in the minority situation to be like understanding. I'm mm-hmm. like, you get it. It's like, why do I have to though? It's yeah. like, yes, I actually do understand exactly what's going on, Racism. but like, <laughs> you're in the wrong. Yeah, like <laughs> you're being absolutely unkind here. Um, but despite all this, they got married four months later. It's like 1977, and they're still married today. <laughs> Her and Lou. Still I married. Love that. But her and Lou also decided to never have children. Really? Amy was really worried about passing on mental health concerns, and she was even more worried about passing on brain tumor issues. Oh. And she said it's just not for her because also after she kind of blew up and became famous, like she had a lot to do. Yeah. So there are many things going on uh, with Amy, but her and Lou are happily married still today. They live in California in a house they designed. So all this sad story, like there is, I, love I, just, Lou. I, I had to put this in really early um, because it's, uh, you needed to know that there is some happy. I love that. Um, Amy did get her bachelor's. Then she got her master's in English and linguistics. And then she took doctoral courses at the university of California, Berkeley. While Amy was studying at Berkeley, her roommate was murdered, and she had to identify the body. Oh, my God. So then Amy was temporarily mute from this for a while. And every year for 10 years, on the day that she had to identify her friend's body, she just didn't speak. It was just too much for her to take in. Oh, Can you imagine seeing your roommate dead on, like, a cold table? No. I don't ever want that to be the case in my life. No, I, and it's so funny because there's going to be an, an issue of identifying a body in my story, uh-huh. which is crazy. Um, you know, and I just can't imagine having to do that. No, no. I mean, it's hard enough to see somebody you loved at a viewing. Yeah. Let alone, you know, identifying a body in a morgue. Okay. While Amy's in school, she worked odd jobs, serving as a switchboard operator, a car hop, a bartender, a pizza maker. She's so cute. I know. I want to be a car hop. She actually started a freelance business as a freelance business writer, working on projects for AT&T, IBM, Bank of America, Pacific Bell. So she's just writing like their... They're like manuals and shit and like they're little books that go out with all their products. That's what she started doing. Okay. Also, I love this because she was probably like writing stuff for IBM the same time that like Casey's grandfather was working for yeah. IBM. I mean, she goes, yeah, Joy Luck Club Just wasn't my first bestseller. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. She was like, yeah, no, my first bestseller was a product thing for IBM. <laughs> like I sold more That's copies of that than anything. <laughs> so cool i just like i love the whole history of like stuff like that because people thought it was like fucking crazy yeah like casey's grandfather was like selling computers that didn't exist <laughs> yeah right and people were like They're wait in- what is this product like, uh casey's dad has these stories of like yeah my dad took me to an airplane hangar that was just one computer and he's like this is the future like 
crazy shit like that. And I love that Amy Tan is mixed in. <laughs> in my fantasy, they meet. Yeah, they're best friends. <laughs> <laughs> they have lunch every On Sunday. On a basis. <laughs> it's called the Luck Joy Club. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she also like her one of her her best friend who really was like a, they grew up as like cousins because she was one of the girls where her mom was an an auntie, an auntie. she calls them all aunties mm-hmm. in the joy luck club um she her one of her best friend's husbands like started this little business newspaper thing and he had amy write the astrology section but she just <gasps> made shit up oh my <laughs> gosh just... that's Perfect. So Amy Tan also writes astrology. This is wonderful. And this is perfect because we're in the horoscope season, everybody. I know. I know. So she was looking for something meaningful to do with her writing. Mm-hmm. She knew she was going to work for like these big tech corporations forever. But like she just wanted to do something on the side. So she's on vacation with Lou in Hawaii and gets a call from her brother that her mom had a heart attack and is in the hospital. She runs up to a payphone, doesn't exist anymore, mm-hmm. runs up to a payphone, and as she's dialing, she just, like, looks up at the sky and makes a vow. She's like, if my mom gets through this, I'm going to really listen to her. Like, I am going to make a point to be a part of her life and wow. not hate her anymore. And she calls. She gets a hold of her mom. It's not a heart attack. It's like an anxiety attack. And Amy held true her promise and this changed amy's life she started talking to her mother she sits down and films her mom and her mom told her all the stories and her whole past her parents had never talked about their lives in china so let's start with amy's grandmother her mom's mom her mom's mom was married to a poor scholar living in china he passed away making her grandmother a widow Mm. so a very rich man stinking rich man who owned like an island married amy's grandmother as his fourth wife not his fourth dead wife right as a concubine so amy's grandmother was a concubine for this very rich man her mom was born on a privileged island in shanghai with her mother being a concubine her grandmother was raped by this man on a regular basis that's how she conceived most of her children Okay, so it wasn't like she also loved him. It was like she was a widow. She had nowhere else to go. And then this was the only option. Option. Okay. And then when Amy's mom was young, Amy's grandmother um, took an excess of opium to teach him a lesson. So Amy's mom watched her own mother take her own life. So that was a successful attempt. A successful attempt. So her grandmother... Which is a hor- I hate... It's horrifying. I hate that term for it too, yeah. a successful attempt, mm-hmm. because it's like, there's no success mm-hmm. in that. That's awful. Yeah. That Amy's mother- I will say a completed- A completed attempt. A completed attempt. That she took her own life via opium to get away from this man. <sighs> Fuck. When her mother was very young, this man married her off to a wealthy man. She was raped often- got pregnant often uh he made her do extreme sex acts amy's mom amy's mom she says and this is not her dad this is the man she was married to before her dad that amy had no idea about so she didn't okay her her they had no idea um that they're only finding out because she vowed to like finally start talking to my mom um her mom says she was like a machine uh he made her watch him have sex with other women 
She had four children with this man, <gasps> one son and three daughters. And Amy's mom had to invite over the daughter's friends from school so he could rape them as well. <gasps> then her son got food poisoning one night at a restaurant. He has all this t- terrible diarrhea. He's really sick. And she goes to her husband and is like, I- we need to get him to a hospital. And her husband just says, if he dies, he dies. <gasps> and he died. <sighs> so Amy's mom in Shanghai getting raped, dead son, three daughters. So Amy and her younger brother, John Jr., found out about this in their 30s. And they're like, our mom's been married, and we have three half-sisters living in China that have maybe been terrorized their whole life? Like, can we please talk about this, Mom? Like, this is a serious situation. Turns out her father, her real father, had worked as a U.S., um, information in the U.S. information industry. So he was Chinese, but like was working with the U.S. He met Amy's mom. They had an affair and they ran away together to the United States because divorce was illegal. So Amy's like, I can't imagine the guilt of leaving your three daughters in that. So her whole life, she has this other family, but is still thinking like I left my girls. Oh my God. Right. So this is where the Joy Luck Club came from. I was going to say, because a lot of this, because again, I read like the first, like maybe fourth of the book and it's sounding very familiar. Like this, a woman in China, like having to make a really fucking difficult decision. Right. So she joined a writing workshop after she started talking to her mom and she starts writing about multi-generational group of women first and second generation Chinese Americans and the workshop instructor loves it. She's like, send some of this into magazines, like short stories into magazines. It goes in FM. It goes in 17. The New Yorker turned it down. So screw you. (laughs) She receives book offers before it's even fully written. Um, and She's like, you know, this is probably not my only book, so I'm going to shop it around and wheel and deal because I, I'm never going to make a living off of this. Um, she thought it's going to get published and my life's going to go back to normal in six months. But she publishes it and it goes right to the top of the New York bestsellers list and stayed there because there was nothing in the market like it. Yeah. So if you, like Katie and I, have never <laughs> read The Joy Luck Club... The Joy Luck Club is about four aunties who sit around a square table, northeast, south, and west, um, once a week, and they trade gossip and eat dinner and play mahjong. The club founder, the main character's mom, had recently passed away, and Jing Mi, the main character, is struggling to fill her mother's shoes at the table. That's like one of the best, I think, it's, it's an interesting part, because again, again, I read a fourth of the book, uh-huh. Um her feeling this pressure of like sitting in her mother's place at the table oh, yeah. is very interesting. Then her aunts reveal to her some secrets about her mother's life. And she realizes that she has a lot to learn about her mom and her roots. The book is written as interconnected vignettes and it's loosely structured exactly like a game of Mahjong. <gasps> So really? the format of the game is that there are four rounds with four games each. The book is four parts with four chapters each, alternating back and forth between China and San Francisco, each chapter telling the story of one of the four matriarchs of the family 
or their American-born daughters. I got chills. Oh. I did not know that it was <gasps> modeled after the game. That's so interesting. It's very interesting. It takes you to war zones in China. It takes you to modern American marriages. It talks about tense family relationships, survival, loss, love, ambition, arranged marriages, divides between generations, and really just the cultural life of an immigrant family. Yeah. The mothers have experienced hardships in China and worked so hard to get their daughters a better life in America, but the daughters are weighed down by their mother's high expectations. The moms are saying, why doesn't my daughter know me? And the daughters are saying, why doesn't my mom understand me? And it is the anxiety of every, um, I won't say every, but a lot of immigrant stories where you feel not welcomed in your new land, but alienated by your home country. I feel like that's such a common thing with like, Mom and daughters in general. And that's why the story clicked. Because this story is not just related to ethnicity. Obviously it is. It is the first, you know, really mainstream ethnic story. But it shows the struggle of women having a backstory and not being able to connect to their daughters. Specifically because Amy Tan is a boomer. Which means her mom is part of the silent generation or the greatest generation, which our moms were a part of that. And I do think they feel that with their moms. They didn't get each other. And also the story focuses on when you lose your mother, like, what are you losing? And it's so much more than you could ever know. And Amy almost lost that. If she didn't stop and talk to her mom. I can't imagine. She would have lost this entire story. So for many, this was the first Asian American author that they read, especially for many white people. For a lot of Asian people, it was the first mainstream Asian author they read. It reflected on the glamorous Shanghai of the 30s and the civil war that was happening in China, things they weren't talking about in U.S. history classes. So... It also talked about kids being impatient that their parents spoke broken English and being embarrassed because they felt like their parents were stupid around their friends because they didn't know what words to use. And um, Amy just had a complexity to observe culture as an American, but specifically as a Chinese American. So how the hell do you follow up the Joy Luck Club? (laughs) It is not easy. So... She didn't go far. The first thing she wrote after this is The Kitchen God's Wife. And it was also a bestseller. And that is literally her mom's story. This is the story of her mother, her mother's sex life, what happened in China. Like in the documentary, there are videos of her explaining these very intimate things like he brought this other woman into our room and he wanted to have sex with both of us, but I refused. So he forced me to watch Mm. and like. It is just, like, intense because her best friend also said, like, a concubine is not something that American culture understands in the same way that the 1930s Chinese women understood. Mm -hmm. It's just different. 
She also wrote um, The Hundred Secret Senses, which is about relationships between half-sisters. She wrote The Bone Setter's Daughter, which is about a Chinese woman and her American-born daughter. She wrote kids' books, one called The Moon Lady, one called The Chinese Siamese Cat. Her books have been, I mean, stacks and stacks and stacks of yeah. books um, have been translated into 35 different languages. Mm. Amy ended up being the lead rhythm dominatrix, backup singer, second tambourine in this rock band. Um, So there was this literary group that was like, let's go out and have a band of all famous authors. And they all just like went around and played together, raising millions of dollars for like book programs. And she was like the tambourine and she wore like leather and it was crazy. (laughs) She was also on The Simpsons, of course, and she, like, shames Lisa. (laughs) Lisa gets up to ask a question at a panel, and she's like, I love how the Joy Luck Club, you know, highlighted relationships between mothers and daughters, and she's like, that's not what the book was about. (laughs) It's really a really funny scene. (laughs) But as we know, in 1993, the Joy Luck Club became a movie, And it was the first of its kind. It was the first movie that had actual Asian and Asian-American actresses portray every Asian character in the film. Isn't that crazy that it took that long? 1993. (laughs) The second one of its kind was Crazy Rich Asians in 2018. 2018. And it changed the life of these actresses. Many... Um, Asian people said they went to see it multiple times Mm. in the theater. Um, the Asian women actresses said they had people running up to them on the street saying, you're just like my mom. You remind me of my mom on screen. Like, thank you. Thank you for doing that role. And although writing was her focus and she said, I don't want to get involved in the film. The screenwriter said, can you please just write one scene? And after oh. she wrote one scene, she said it was like heroin. She <laughs> had to write a lot of them. But he also said that she loved suggestions and was not prideful. She wasn't like, oh, well, the audience expects this. She was just like, yeah, that's a good idea. What's the best way to tell this story? And they told it, of course. Um, she went on book tour after book tour after book tour, but one of them, her body started to feel really broken. Something wasn't quite right. Um, she was really disengaged and sick. She was going on red lights and stopping at green lights, and um, she's hallucinating and having nightmares. So in 1994, she eventually ends up back in the hospital, and they find out that she has had Lyme's disease that has been misdiagnosed for a while. And she was suffering, like, epileptic seizures from it. Um, But because of this, I mean, she gets on medication. She could have died. Like, she ends up being fine. But she found Limeade for kids, which helps uninsured children pay for treatment for Lyme's disease. That's great, because Lyme's disease is no My dad has Lyme's disease. No. Because you can't get rid of it once you have it. He got it on a Boy Scout trip. He got really, really sick. What the fuck? And, like... I mean, if you let it go untreated for too long, you can't come back from it. Your dad has Lyme disease. Yeah, does he have to get constant treatment? Um, for it? he has to do medication, but it's not like a it's not like a once a day type treatment. But okay. like, yeah, you do have to like take medication. Because I knew a girl that had it, and she had to have like a thing like on her body at all times. It depends like, how long you have it before right. it's diagnosed. So like, because my dad was like a Boy Scout, he always checked for ticks, and then anytime he found a tick, he would be like, "I got to go get checked out." So it was like a quick, you know, be prepared and shit like that. (laughs) 
<laughs> the whole Boy Scout thing. The whole Boy Scout creed really right. helped him. Be prepared. <laughs> so Amy also struggled with depression through her life, like her mother and her grandmother. She takes antidepressants, and um, it, again, it's one of the reasons she chose not to have uh, children, which this is not saying people with mental health should choose not to have children. We treat mental health much more um, appropriately mm-hmm. in the United States at this time. This was just Amy's choice. Yeah. In 1995, her mother, um, who she'd been interviewing for all these books, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Mm. She couldn't remember things, and her brain was deteriorating. And one day, she called Amy on the phone, and they talked every day on the phone at this point because she had filmed her, and she says, my mom always thought she was helping me write my books, Ah. which she was. Yeah, she was, (laughs) yeah. So she says one day her mom called her, and her mom was crying, and Amy said, what's wrong? And she said, I, I know I hurt you, but I can't remember what oh I did. She said, I just want to say I'm sorry, and I hope that one day you forget too. <laughs> and that is heartbreaking. Uh, that's so sad. It's so sad. So her mom eventually <sighs> ended up in a coma in the hospital, and Amy and the whole family spent so much time there talking to her and Amy would play like a Bach and Beethoven and go in her ear and go, mom, I've been practicing the piano because Amy hated it so much. But there's so many, um, Lou did a lot of the filming when they, like she, her and Lou ended up going to China with her mom and her mom showed him around, but Lou did a lot of filming at any time Amy sat down and played the piano, the smile on her mom's face is just amazing. So that must be so cool to like have it. All right. Also, I want to say, cause my mom took your daughters on a tour of Catonsville yes. last week and it was so cute. Mm-hmm. And like all the places that like are important to like our family and our, our family history. And oh, I was yeah. thinking about when Olivia, our sister-in-law and her mom got to go back to Japan where her mom is from. Mm-hmm. And that video where her mom goes back to the store and her best friend is there. Yeah. Oh like, my God. Oh Brace my heart. I cry. Yeah. I just, I love when generations can meet and like, and you can take someone back to the past, you know, it for me would be like, if I like walked somewhere like the old open Bible campus in Hamilton, you know, be like, (laughs) me and Jake went there before just to hang out in the parking lot. It's great. It's so nice. This is where we played wall ball. It's totally overgrown now, but like, (laughs) it was beautiful. This is where Pastor Sandbeck used to come out and make the kids play with metal detectors. (laughs) And you would definitely plant coins in the ground. Like that's fun. No Roman coins are naturally appearing in the same <laughs> <Baltimore>. dirt. <laughs> that's funny. So her book has been turned into all types of, me- all her books have been turned into all types of media. We've got operas. We've got kids, CBS shows. There's movies, there's plays. Obviously there's a documentary, but Amy dealt with a fair bit of criticism because as much as people wanted her to be a spokesperson, There are people who hate the way that she portrays Chinese culture. Some people say Amy's writing depicts Chinese culture from the view of an American-born Chinese person, which is what she is, Yeah. first of all. Another person says her popularity is mostly attributed to Western culture who find her stereotypical images comforting. They don't like that, like, in the book, the older women speak broken English. But, like, Amy's mom speaks broken English. Yeah. Like she just does. They don't like that. Like in the books, she treats Chinese men pretty terribly, but like her mom's first husband was a shithole. 
Yeah. Like, yeah, she's not like making that. She's like, I can only write from my experience. And that's my experience. Like my dad was a great man. Yeah. But my mom's first husband was not. Yeah. Like, what do you want from me? I also think that also it kind of feels to me like if you wrote like a cockney person, you know, like, you know, and you gave them like that certain type of dialect in writing, Mm -hmm. like how else would you describe? Because it is different. Yeah. You know, like. <laughs> my fair lady would be different if she w- didn't start off as very cockney. Like- yeah, and I just like look, I like I get that we don't want negative stereotypes mm-hmm. in writing specifically about a minority culture where you- and I do understand that people are like, oh, white people are reading this and they're thinking that this is the only way that Chinese American people are. Okay, if that's what they think, they're a stupid white person. Like, right. that's dumb. Like, we understand that this is one story. And also, it's not like a white person wrote this and was like, this is what I think Chinese culture is like. Right. Like, this is a woman who's literally talking from her point, of, her, her experience, her learned experience, but like the stories that she's hearing. Right. So. I mean, she is like, look, I know you want me to be like, I'm the first really big mainstream Asian author, not the only, but the first really big. And I know you want me to be this role model who like changes the way that people see Asian people, but that's not who I am. Like, I can't be that for you because it's just as much of an insult to ask her to do that Mm -hmm. as it is to say that like, she can't change all the stereotypes. No. Um, and she really felt that burden of expectation through her life. And I mean, she's had to do a lot to get over it. Mm -hmm. Um, and she says that her works are not meant to be representative of the entire Chinese experience. Mm -hmm. She is one person writing. Like I said, Amy currently lives in California with her husband and she recently released a memoir, which is where we get a lot of these stories about her childhood and her mom. Um, We had a lot of her mom's story, but this recent memoir is where we get the fights that she was having when she was a kid. Um, She's received a ton of National Book Awards, Library Awards, Parent and Critic Choice Awards for her writing. She taught master classes during COVID Ah. like a cool bitch. And she was just a groundbreaking novelist that can teach us a lot about respecting our past. And all I can say is, like, I want to go, like, hug my mom and grandma, like, after this story. (laughs) I I did not expect to, like, get so teary during this story. But, yeah, that's... She's a life-changing lady. Um, And I summarized as much as I could, specifically because I think... Watching the documentary on Netflix, it's just called Amy Tan Un intended memoir i didn't want to tell every story because it is so readily available and it's in her words and her best friend and her husband and you get to see her mom on film who her mom did pass away in 1999 um but it what a journey that's amazing i can't believe it Mm, what a great story that i you know it's funny amy tan has been in our list for a long time long ass time people have requested her yeah and uh, you know it's one of those things like book authors specifically can either be i don't want to say like a dead end but they can either be like yeah they wrote this book and then that was it or they or or the story can be a lot more intense Mm -hmm. and like this is one of those ones like that's a lot more intense than i expected it to be oh yeah because i didn't know that it came from such a a personal space Mm -hmm. but 
I had no idea that the Joy Luck Club was that personal to her life. Yeah, I had no idea. And like I, I mean, I knew when Crazy Rich Asians came out as a movie, I remember watching an interview with Aquafina being like the only mm. movie I ever saw with an entirely Asian cast playing Asian people before this was the Joy Luck Club. God. I just can't imagine that as a child. Yeah. It's so interesting too. Cause I, I, I recommended her show Nora from Queens last week. Yeah. <laughs> And it is so good. I was watching it last night and I totally stand by it. But there's a great episode where Nora's sick and her ma, her grandma comes in and she's like, all right, let me tell you like my story of how I got to America from China. Mm. And it kind of reminds me of that, of like, you know, she's like, I grew up in a wealthy family and then the communism took over and then like we had to like destroy everything. And I was in love with a garbage boy. And like, <laughs> it's just, it's such a great episode. And it reminds me a lot of like this kind of thing of like learning where your family comes from well a lot of your parents stories is very important it is and a lot of what i thought about this week is like america is only white people because europe got here first yeah and that's what like i have to continue reminding i have to remind myself that like i'm saying somebody's a minority group is Uh numbers only and not it doesn't have anything to do with anything it's just a very it's a hard trope that I have to fight in my mind that like mm-hmm. this is my place and these other people are coming in because mm-hmm. it's just how we were taught to think as kids. Yeah. So I don't know. This was a really important story and I am obsessed with Amy Tan now and I want to read too. every book that she's ever written. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to get more drinks and we'll be right back with the story of Natalie Wood. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> We're back with another, I'm just going to spoil it, mother-daughter saga. <laughs> I can't. This is so on accident. And we did not plan this at all. I wish I planned it. Yeah. <laughs> I wish we were that smart. I wish we knew what was going on, but we don't. We don't. Um. So, yeah. Are you ready to find out what you're drinking in honor of Natalie Wood? I do. It looks so good. It looks better than my cocktail. I'm a little jealous. No, I loved your drink. It was so good. I loved it. <sighs> I'm jealous. Okay. Um, so, this is called the, sorry, mm. the Premonition. Mm. It wow. is two ounces of bourbon. Half an ounce of pineapple juice, mm. half an ounce of lime juice, half an ounce of brown sugar, sage, simple syrup. So I um, did water, brown sugar, and I put a bunch of sage leaves in there and orange bitters. And then you shake that up and you strain it into a glass with ice and you top it with ginger beer and you garnish it with a lime wedge. Anything ah! with ginger beer is my homecoming. Cheers. Cheers. Wow. Mm. I love this. It's really good. It's delightful. Oh, yeah. That beats mine. That's really good. Um, I just like the... Um, I've also never made a, a simple syrup with brown sugar. No, usually we just pour it right on in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but... No, that's, that's really nice. good. I like mm. it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not too sweet. It's not tart. It's mm-hmm. just very mellow. It's a good drink. And it's good, you know... 
I feel like it's also an in-between summer fall cocktail for summer and fall. Uh, ironically, you know, I didn't even plan that, but maybe I was just vibing on we it. We don't plan here. No, we don't plan. You guys know that. <laughs> come on. By now. Come, come on. on. Come on. Come on. And if it's your first time, welcome. We don't plan. Um, <laughs> Join us. But yeah, I actually feel like this is exactly my mood for the moment of like halfway between summer and fall yeah it's perfect i'm wearing pants but they're unbuttoned and unzippered i'm also in pants Uh, this is weird i'm untethered yeah you're being wild (laughs) i'm in a floof shirt i could i could be in a tank top because i have one not yet that's fine i'm too fat this time of year (laughs) it's like post beach mayhem okay what do you know about natalie wood okay so she is like one of the first first but she was one of the very successful um like child to adult actor Mm -hmm. switches Mm -hmm. i think uh well i know she is like one of the very beautiful brown hair brown eye Mm -hmm. women of hollywood Mm -hmm. um i think she was in that santa claus movie Mm -hmm. um where all the letters get brought into the court case Mm -hmm. as a little a little baby Mm -hmm. on the stand um and i mean that's really like i i know Natalie Wood has a tragic story, yeah. but I don't know the story. Okay. Like, it's the same way when we did um, Sylvia Plath. I mm. was like, I know she's supposed to be a sad figure. Uh, right. But I don't exactly know why. And somebody needs to educate me on those pop culture facts. Yes. So, I mean, I know that she was Miracle on 50 34th street, 34th street. Mm-hmm. um sorry everyone in new york <laughs> um yeah that's what i know about her all right perfect well this is gonna be interesting her story is long it's crazy it's up and down there's a lot of hardship so similar with the amy tan story just it gets rough at certain points take care so please take care when listening of yourself take of, care yourself. of yourself yeah and that's why i kind of like that phrasing versus mm-hmm. trigger warning yeah, yeah, yeah. because I I think that trigger warning makes it seem like uh, kind of like a weird like overreaction. I think it makes it seem like an overreaction. For sure. And it's not. Yeah. Taking care of yourself is never an overreaction. So I just want to make Full that agree. clear for you and for everyone else. I love you. So my sources for today are 48 Hours. They did a like a special on Natalie Wood. Uh, the podcast True Crime and Cocktails. They did like a two and a half hour long episode <laughs> on Natalie Wood. Uh, Wikipedia, obviously. And then there was like a 15 part episode uh, podcast called Fatal Voyage. So let's get into it. And again, <laughs> this is a very famous person who a lot of people have opinions on, especially how she passed away. So you know, if I didn't get to your favorite fact, I do apologize, but this is a big story. <laughs> so Madonna clause has been Madonna issued. clause has been initiated. Okay. Natalie Wood was born Natalia Nikolaevna Sacharenko on July 20th, 1938. So she's Russian. Yes. Uh, but growing up, she was called Natasha. Her parents were Russian immigrants living in San Francisco. Her mother, Maria or as she was sometimes called Mary, Marie, or Musia, was from southern Siberia, and her cold demeanor matched the icy tundra from which she came. Whoa. (laughs) Shots fired. Shots fired. Uh, (laughs) Her father was a carpenter named Nicholas Sacharenko, who was Maria's second husband. Mm. Um, 
And even before Natalie's birth, she was destined to be a star. The story goes, her mother Maria went to see a fortune teller, and the woman told her that her second child would be a great beauty known throughout the world. So even though she already had a daughter named Olga, every ounce of Maria's energy and attention would be poured into Natalie. Well, I feel like if you name your daughter Olga, that's your own fault. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Olga was one of the Romanov daughters' names, and Maria... But was she Anastasia? <laughs> no, but Maria did tell people. She goes, I'm related to the Romanovs. And people of like, course. No, you're not. <laughs> Of course. No, you're not. <laughs> Maria told a lot of tall tales about her upbringing that I, were not true. I see, I see, I see. Um, Maria even ignored her third daughter, Svetlana, or as she would l- later be known, Lana. So that's Lana Woods. So if you ever hear her name, that's Lana. Um, so she ignored her so much that when she came home from the hospital, she handed Svetlana to a family member and went back to focusing on Natalie. When Natalie was about four years old, the family moved to a town called Santa Rosa in California, and already Maria was feeling like the prophecy about her daughter was coming true because it was announced that a movie called Happy Land was being filmed in Santa Rosa. People in the small town were thrilled to take bit parts and play... (laughs) extras, but no one was more excited than Maria Zacharenko. She would later tell the story of Natalie's discovery as one of fate. The director just happened to notice this beautiful, quiet toddler in the crowd and said she must be in the movie. (laughs) Oh, stop. But in reality, Maria dragged Natalie to that set every day just throwing her in front of the director and coaching her incessantly on how to get noticed. It probably doesn't come as much of a surprise to anyone that Maria had unfulfilled dreams of being a ballerina and an actress. Hmm. So she's taking Natalie to set. She's telling her to curtsy, to smile, to be polite, but also be quiet. And she told her, go up to the director, charm him, smile at him. She goes, and if you get an opportunity, sit in his lap. Okay. I can't even get my kids to throw their, like, tissues in a trash can. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Uh Uh-huh. That's absurd. It's absurd. And soon, the director, a man named Irving Pitchell, he fell for it. He was charmed by this little girl, so he gave her a tiny non-speaking role in the movie. She plays a little girl who drops her ice cream cone... (laughs) And when Maria found that stage direction, she goes, with tears or without, we can do both. (laughs) It's a 15-second scene, and I don't even think you see her face, but it was a start. And what a better time to start in show business than five weeks before your fifth birthday. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, buddy. So two more years go by and no more strokes of luck. But then Maria hears that Irving is set to do another movie in Santa Monica. 
So I don't know if she like heard through the grapevine because like some people say that he called her directly and asked if Natalie could be in the movie. Um, There are a couple different accounts, so I'm not 100% sure which version is true. But either way, he's doing this movie, movie. So instead of like just taking Natalie there and seeing what happens, she packs up the entire family and moves them to Los Angeles in 1946. I mean, it was a need. Yeah, so that Natalie could screen test for his latest film, Tomorrow Is Forever. Her father opposed the idea, not wanting to get into this whole Hollywood mayhem, but his wife's overpowering ambition to make Natalie a star took priority. Natalie goes, she's doing her screen test, and she is not crying on cue. Uh-oh. Her mother said, give me a minute. She slapped she takes. She takes Natalie aside. She said, I was worried this might happen. So I brought backup. She pulls out a glass jar from her bag. This jar has a butterfly in it. She took the butterfly out, ripped its wings off. Natalie started to cry, obviously. She shoved Natalie in front of the camera and said, She's ready! Why not just like some onions? Like, I feel like onions would have done the trick. Onions would have been fine. That's that's But that wouldn't have been the same. Because Irving was impressed. He said her tears seemed to come from the depths of some dark despair. <laughs> She's like, yes, it's her relationship with the mother. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He she said, just murdered a yeah. butterfly. <laughs> he said she was a natural talent. <laughs> so she got the part. And her big scene was with none other than a weird H-O-T-R alum, kind of, Orson Welles. He oh seems my to be in a lot of these stories around this time period. Orson, welcome. Get out of here. Welcome no, to the show. Get out of here. We hate you. <laughs> um, so if you're wondering how she got her to cry for the film, the scene in the film, Maria pulled her aside before the scene and reminded Natalie in vivid detail of the time that she witnessed her dog get hit by a car. I feel like that's not something you should say to a t- child. No. Yeah? No. Okay. Just checking on my parents. Oh, yeah. I didn't read yeah, that no, and what to expect good. when you were expecting. <laughs> so in this movie, she played a post-World War II German orphan, and she even had to dye her hair blonde for the role. But in order to play the German orphan, they had to give her a more American-sounding name. And thus, Natalie Wood was officially born. <laughs> She didn't actually like the name at first, but she was taught to be a dutiful child no matter what. But she did later say that it was very confusing because she wasn't used to be being called Natalie. She's like, I'm Natasha. And then she's also constantly being called different character names on set. So she was very confused when she was a child. Mm. She's like, what the fuck is my name? Like, <laughs> I can't imagine as a little baby. I can't imagine. No. But the studio was so impressed by the young girl uh, that they started putting her in some other features. Later in 1946, she was in another movie called The Bride Wore Boots. And then in 1947, she was in The Ghost and Mr. Muir and another film called Driftwood. But there was one more movie that the studio wanted to put her in that year. It was a little holiday film called It's Only Human, which would later be called Miracle on 34th Street. This was truly her breakout role. 
She was only eight years old and already being called the most promising young actress in Hollywood. Oh my God, Dakota Fanning much? Mm-hmm. In fact, she was so young that she still believed in Santa Claus when she was making this movie, which is so ironic because it's about a little girl who's doubting the reality of Santa Claus. And she believed that her Kris Kringle co-star was really him for quite some time. Like, she was like, yeah, I made a movie with Santa Claus, and that was it. Maureen O'Hara played her mother in the movie, and she said that she and Natalie became very close during filming, because I'm sure Natalie was not so keen on her mother. And since they filmed in Macy's department store at night... They got to wander around the stores at all hours, just the two of them. She said, we did things that we should not have been doing. I'm very jealous. I was thinking that I was like, this fact is so weird to put in, but I have to put it in because I know Allie will be so jealous. I am. I love a Macy's. Mm -hmm. I take my kids there every December Mm -hmm. and they write their, even now they write their letters to Santa that they don't believe them. And we put them in the Macy's mailbox. It's so cute. I'm obsessed with it. I love the Macy's day parade. I also, this room, it, I mean, perfect. It reminds me of, um, Lauren Graham, like Mm -hmm. guiding Alexis Bledel around because that's why her hand is on her back so much in the first season Mm -hmm. she's like you need to hit your mark i'm gonna show you where it is like it's a very cute like when you play mother daughter on screen and the the girl is very young you Mm -hmm. you are a pseudo mom you're a babysitter at the very least yeah and and you are and apparently maureen o'hara did such a good job which i i love that for natalie Mm -hmm. that like she had this experience with this woman that was so sweet so unique you know and it's funny because Thanksgiving is, uh, and Miracle on 34th Street in particular, is a feeling that I have very linked to my mom, Mm. you know, because we would come home from church, we'd watch the Macy's Day Thanksgiving parade, and then Miracle on 34th Street would come on directly afterwards. Right. Mm-hmm. It's also interesting because then the Rose Bowl comes on and she was in a movie about the Rose Bowl. Natalie Wood. Yeah, it's interesting <laughs> because those types of things like I obviously Thanksgiving is my birthday mm-hmm. and that's a movie that would come on around my birthday. But then also I share a, a birthday with my sexual abuser. So I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, my God. So it's something that like for me, I've always been like very tied to and then also hate. Oh, fuck. At that time of year, which isn't that weird that everybody. Well, technically mine's the 23rd and his is the 22nd, but we would have to blow out candles together. Um, so it's I'm glad of, it's not the same day. Though. It's not the exact That's same day, good, but, but it's still you had to share that experience. We had to share the experience every year and blow out candles together at Thanksgiving, dinner, at Thanksgiving which dinner. is supposed to be this like peaceful family very peaceful comforting time so it's a very weird feeling to me but i also like tied to like being able to jump into movies like that because they also play wizard of oz every thanksgiving Mm -hmm. on cable and i remember being like feeling like i can escape this yeah if i can just like watch these movies so they're very important (laughs) they are they are like just as much as like the lions football game is on every thanksgiving like yep that's important people get to escape yeah and Natalie Wood was such a good child actress mm-hmm. <laughs> that, like, she could provide that escape for people. I didn't quite realize how good she was until I was seeing, like, back-to-back-to-back footage of her in all of these fucking movies. Mm. And she is going back and forth between all these roles, and you can tell she's the same age, and she's playing completely different characters. Right. It's 
insane. I mean, she did three films in 1947 and two more in 1948. And sometimes the filming schedules would overlap. And you have this eight to nine year old girl being rushed from set to set and having to know her lines and what her name was today and what accent she was supposed to do. Sometimes she was Southern. Sometimes she was British. Like she didn't know who she was. She was so fucking confused. And keep in mind, she wasn't really in school. So she didn't know how to read. So she had to learn all of her lines with having them being read to her. So she's memorizing. Yeah. Oh, this baby. This baby. She did have an onset tutor to kind of stay up to date with school and kind of meet like the legal minimum. But Maria demanded to sit in on all the lessons, which I'm sure made it stressful for Natalie and the teacher because Maria was not the most agreeable person. (laughs) Then if she wasn't working or being tutored, like if she actually had any sort of free time, she wasn't even allowed to like play with other kids. Her mother banned her from playing with other children, and she banned any activity that involved running because she didn't want Natalie getting injured and losing out on roles. Because if she didn't get a role, she didn't get money. And she was making pretty good money at this time. Natalie earned $800 a week when she was around nine years old. Oh, my God. And her mother certainly wasn't going to give up that kind of cash. I mean, again, at nine years old, she is the breadwinner for her family of five. Her father was injured at work, so she was the only one working in the entire family. But in order to keep making that money, she had to keep making movies. So along with her crazy filming schedule, she was also auditioning constantly. If she wasn't on set or in tutoring sessions, she was auditioning. And these auditions were highly scrutinized by her mother. After one bad audition, her mother said, well, I guess Olga doesn't get new shoes this year. Oh my gosh. And just, she's putting all this pressure on her. And it's funny because she ended up getting that role. Like her mother thought it was such a bad audition and she still got the role. And Natalie's working so fucking hard. But the burden of carrying an, a, a an family, family as a child. Yeah. And it's one thing if you don't quite realize it, you know, you're like, oh, I'm doing this fun thing. And like, yeah, I'm like doing all these things, but it's fine. But like her mother made it, made it known every single step of the way how much the entire family was depending on her. Right. Soon, though, her health started to suffer, obviously. Um One time her mother went in to wake her up for work and Natalie couldn't move. Mm. She was paralyzed from the stress at work. It's something called psychoparalysis and it was Natalie's body's way of going on strike. Her body just told her limbs like, do not move. You cannot move from this bed. I need to rest. So she had this psychoparalysis for, I don't know how long it was, but as soon as she was able to move, her mom didn't say, I think you need to take a break. Her mom said, okay, we have a lot of lost time to catch up for now. So you need to get back to work and you need to work 10 times harder. 
But that's like what caused the problem in the first place. Yeah. Yes, it was. And then not only was she hurt psychologically, but she was hurt physically at work when a bridge collapsed too early on set while she was running across it for a scene. Like <gasps> she's in this scene and she's supposed to run across. And then right when she gets over the crest, the bridge collapses. But they did it too soon. So Natalie gets sent into this rushing water in this river and she not only broke her wrist but she almost drowned but maria wouldn't take her to the hospital because she was afraid that if she took natalie to the hospital the studio would think of her as a fussy problem child if she did the accident not only left a bump on her wrist that she would cover up with bracelets for the rest of her life but it solidified a fear that she had had since she was born so we said earlier that the fortune teller told Maria that her second child would be famous. But she also told Maria that someone in her family would die of drowning in water. And this was something that Maria reminded Natalie of constantly. She told her all the time, don't go near water. Don't go in water. Like, you're going to drown. Like, there's a prophecy. And... So she just had this very deep-seated fear of water. And she goes, and wouldn't you know it, a lot of my movies had to do with water. Oh, like, it was no. really unfortunate. Poor baby. That's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, the fear was constant in Natalie's life. And the bridge incident only made it even more real. But she had to keep working. She made eight more movies between 1949 and 1951. She's making, like, three movies a year. It's insane. But she was getting a bit irritated because she is growing older, but her roles are staying the same age. Mm. I do want to say, mm -hmm. you said 1951, just to put everybody mm -hmm. in like perspective, 1952 is when Amy Tan was born. Mm -hmm. So now we're in overlap central. Mm -hmm. So now we're in overlap territory. And Natalie is... <laughs> and they're in California together. Yes, in California. And Natalie same already date. has... So many films under her belt. Yeah. <laughs> she's already and, been a working woman for... What is she, like a teenager? Uh, I mean, she's still pretty young. Yeah, yeah, You know, yeah. she's like maybe like 12, 13 years old. Right, so they overlap at a pretty young age. Yeah, and pretty she's... amazing. And that's why she's getting frustrated because she's like, I'm 12 and I'm playing an eight-year-old. She's like, this is really embarrassing. It's tiresome. I mean, Judy Garland dealt with that. It's tiresome. Yes, she did. And she also was dealing with the thing of, like, I'm always somebody's daughter. It's just like, I'm Gregory Peck's daughter. I'm this person's daughter. I'm that person's daughter. She goes, I want to be myself. Like, yeah. I want to be a leading lady. Exactly. Um, so in 1952, she finally got to play a teenager opposite Betty Davis. So she was still Betty Davis's daughter, but she was a teenager. Good. Um, in the movie The Star. This movie was a big step in her career, and it was also a big step in how she saw her own power or what she could potentially reach in her terms of her own power in Hollywood. So in this movie, there was going to be a scene involving water, and she really didn't want to do it because she obviously has this deep phobia of water. So Betty Davis stood up for her as the star of the film, and she said, no, you're going to use a stunt double for Natalie because she's not comfortable. This was the first time anyone ever stood up for her. Mm. 
And it made her realize that she was like, okay, if I can be like Betty Davis, if I can have a career like her, I can demand more for myself. And it was kind of just a real like clicking point in her head of like, I will have to keep working. Like I can't just walk away from this. Obviously this is what I've known my whole life, but she goes, if I keep working, then I will have some power. And there was kind of just some, some light at the end of the tunnel. So when she was 14 years old, she decided that she was going to make a demand for herself. She said, I demand to go to public school. She goes, I have been taught by these on-site tutors the entire time I've been here. And she said, I don't want to do this anymore. She goes, I want to be around kids my own age. I want to go to fucking public school and be a real teenager. It's like average at best. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So she started attending Van Nuys High School in Los Angeles. And she started dating and smoking and driving her very own Thunderbird convertible. Okay, now I'm jealous. (laughs) (laughs) She got out from under her mother's thumb in any way she could, which was primarily via boys. In 1954, when she was 15, she fell in love with a boy named Jimmy Williams, who was about 17 years old. The relationship got very serious, very fast, with Jimmy even giving her an engagement ring at some point, and Natalie proudly wore the ring home, but when her mother saw it, She flipped out and drove Natalie to Jimmy's house and forced her to give the ring back and break up with him. (gasps) Why? Jimmy was heartbroken. And he ended up shooting himself in the face with a rifle. That day? I don't know if it was that day, but it was around this time period. Like, because it was like, there was also something of like, then like they broke up, he was heartbroken. And then like some other boy asked him to like, if he could take Natalie out, like it was definitely like because of this whole situation. Oh my gosh. He didn't die, thankfully, but his face was permanently damaged. And I want to make it clear. Jimmy ended up being, getting married and having a family And he, like, people ask him about Natalie Wood, obviously, and he was like, what happened is what happened. He goes, but I wouldn't give up my family and my wife and my children for anything in the world. He goes, even Natalie Wood, I wouldn't give them up. Yeah, but as a wife, you're like, you shot yourself for her. What am I? I can't even imagine the situation. I would be... Listen, I'm a bitter ass bitch. I would be like, why haven't you shot yourself for me? Why haven't you I'm, shot yourself? For me? And that is a terrible thing to it's say. It's an awful thing. But I would absolutely be constantly thinking that. Yeah. But also I had, I'd be like, should I leave you or <laughs> I'm the worst, but that's what I would think. Yeah. But yeah, so Jimmy had a good life. So I just want everybody to I'm, know I'm that. happy for Jimmy. I'm very happy for him. I'm like absolutely like proud of his wife. And their children, like, good for you guys. Um, And it's also not Natalie's fault. That was her mom who was like, you guys can't be together. Oh, yeah. And it was not the only time her mother had interfered with her personal sexual life. Yeah. And it's also never your fault if somebody hurts themselves over you. Yeah. So, like, yeah, not your fault. No. Um, Maria, her her original kind of game plan was to make Natalie very afraid of sex. So she sat her down and she goes, Maria, I just want to warn, sorry, Natalie, 
It's hard because she famously played a Maria. <laughs> so Maria told Natalie, she goes, I just want to warn you. You have such a small figure that if you have sex with a man with a large penis, it's going to puncture your internal organs and you will bleed to death internally. No, it's going to be great. And so this <laughs> is like very scary for now. Can we, can somebody give Natalie some sex? Ed? Oh God. She, all, all she had was like this fucked up shit that her mother was telling her. Oh. And of course it was fucked up shit that was only meant to keep her away from poor boys with no connections. <laughs> but when older men in Hollywood were interested, Maria had no problem throwing her teenage daughter at them. So she's like, you can have sex with my daughter for more roles type mm-hmm. of thing. Shit. I hate that. I hate that. I hate that. I hate that. Maria once tried to push 15-year-old Maria into a sexual relationship with Frank Sinatra, who was obviously much older than her. I don't think they actually had one, but it was like, she'd be like, why don't you take, you know, Natalie out on the town, you know? And they'd like be like photographed together. And then there were rumors and like Frank Sinatra's almost 40, you know? And Maria was, like, very much encouraging them to sleep together. I don't think they actually did. But Maria was trying to push it. Frank had his pick Mm -hmm. of the ladies. any guy that seemed remotely interested in Natalie, Maria encouraged her to flirt with them. Again, sit in their lap, like, all these fucked up things. One of Natalie's friends said, oh, yeah, Maria was basically a pimp, pimping her daughter out to get more roles, more access to the Hollywood elite. And then one night, Maria had arranged a meeting for Natalie with a famous actor who was very well connected at the Chateau Marmont Hotel when Natalie was 16. Maria drove her there with her younger sister Lana in the car, and they waited until Natalie was finished with her meeting. This is the upsetting. This is one of the many upsetting parts. This man asked Natalie up to his hotel room to read for a part. But of course, when they got up to the hotel room, there was no script. He turned to Natalie and said, I like young girls. I've always wanted to fuck a teenager. Natalie turned to leave, but he grabbed her and dragged her across the room and proceeded to rape her. The attack was described as brutal, violent, and verbally abusive. And after he was done, he told her that if she told anyone, it would be the last thing she ever did. Natalie left in a daze. Her sister said that she came back to the car disheveled and upset. Natalie didn't plan to tell her mother, but unfortunately, she was hurt physically. Days later, she was still bleeding from the attack and she needed medical attention. So she finally told her mother, and her mother took her to the hospital. But just because she took Natalie to the hospital did not mean that she had a sympathetic or normal response to her daughter's trauma. Apparently, she was simply delighted that a man of such high esteem in Hollywood be, would be interested in Natalie. She thought it was good for her career. What happened? Did he, like, rip her cervix? I don't know. Days later, bleeding? Days later, she's still bleeding. I mean, that is, like... Somebody who's not using any lubrication, mm-hmm. like that just shows no consideration, like, yeah, at all. Because I mean, anything dry cannot feel good yeah. for either party, so you just don't give a fuck. You don't give a fuck at that point. No, oh, this poor baby. Mm-hmm. 
Natalie's close friends and family know who exactly the perpetrator is, but they didn't say anything for a long time. Her sister, however, however, revealed in 2021 in her book, Little Sister, that it was actor Kirk Douglas who did this. He was 38 years old at the time and married. And when he passed away in 2022, his name, of course, was trending on Twitter because their names were always linked. People always suspected it was him, but it was never confirmed until 2021. His son, Michael Douglas, in response to this storm of accusation, simply said, may they both rest in peace, which tells me that he wasn't denying that his father was the culprit of this heinous act. Well, listen, Michael Douglas, I can't. (sighs) It's a fucked up situation. I mean, it's really hard. It, mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard because Natalie Wood was in a period of Hollywood when this was acceptable, mm-hmm. but this is never acceptable. No. And everybody was supposed to keep their mouth shut, but nobody should have kept their mouth shut. And it's like, what is Kirk Douglas supposed to do? He wasn't the culprit either. You mean Michael? That's what I meant. <laughs> Kirk, Kirk Douglas was the culprit. He absolutely <laughs> raped her. Yeah. Michael Douglas. What is it? What is he supposed to do at that point? Yeah. I mean, that's hard. I mean, that's hard. It's not that like, yeah, I would love to disparage a dead family member. I would love that. (laughs) I would write a book about it. (laughs) Yeah. Most people don't feel like that. Yeah. And I just feel like that response said everything. Like, may they both, like, may they both rest in peace was to me like, yeah, he did that. And like, I'm still sad about my dad, but like, I'm also not denying that he did this fucked up thing. And like, let's let maybe and like, do I know the ins and outs of this story? Absolutely not. So maybe he has defended his father to the nth degree. I I don't know. That's him being like, (laughs) let their memories rest. And it's like, but I don't want. Yeah. Yeah. His memory to rest. Like, you know, I want to be fucking want him to go down as as an assaulter. Yeah. 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 Like Tim Curry. I want to remember him with the Muppet Babies. (laughs) As a pirate. I thought that you were going to disparage <laughs> Tim Curry. Never. And Never. I was going to be very upset. Never. And like, Tim Curry? Yeah. I want him to go down as the worst person who's ever lived. No. And I was like, no. I want I want him I to be him. with Kermit on Muppet's For Treasure Island. Ever. And it's going to be amazing. Yes. Douglas, go down in Douglas, hell. go to fucking hell. <laughs> so this same year. Natalie was on a mission. You know, she's got a lot going on personally, obviously. So much. But she wants to get the lead female role in the new James Dean movie, Rebel Without a Cause. James Dean dies, though. Mm hmm. <laughs> I know Three that. Three days before the premiere. It's not Oh, yeah, I up. knew that because of one of the other stories we did. Yeah. Which one? I don't know. All of them. All of them. <laughs> but isn't that fucked up? He died yeah. three days before the premiere. I don't even say that in this story, so that's why I'm saying it now. I just want his little cigarettes so to rolled put it up in. in his shirt, his little biceps. <laughs> so her mother, Maria, didn't want her to do it. She thought it was too risque, and she didn't like the rebellious anti-parent message of the film, which right, is, Maria. you know, probably why Natalie wanted to do it so bad. And also, director Nicholas Ray was not convinced that this, like, sweet child star could handle the role of this rebellious teenager. He was considering Jane Mansfield or even Debbie Reynolds for the role. 
but Natalie was determined. Debbie Reynolds, back off. <laughs> back off, lady. Back off. Just go I birth. I also love you. Go birth Princess Leia and let us all be. <laughs> but there were two things that put Natalie above the competition. The first thing was a message she had sent to Ray. It was after she had gotten into a drunken car crash oh, shit. with her friends. Okay, girl. And she sent to, she called him on the phone and said, the doctor just called me a goddamn juvenile delinquent. Now do I get the part? <gasps> Everybody get an Uber. Please get an Uber. <laughs> My God. We're grownups now. So that was the first thing. The second thing was that she started to have an affair with him. <gasps> Mm, not good. So she got the part of Judy. Matt! And this was the movie that would turn her into a bona fide ingenue. Okay. And it signaled to the world that she was ready to be a true leading lady. Yeah, I'm a grown-up now. She even received her first Oscar nomination. Mm-hmm. So when you said earlier, like, she made the transition transition from child star to regular, like, movie star actress, this is the movie that did this. Yeah. Truly. I mean, to me, she's, like, one of the first people who did that really, really successfully. Really successfully. Really. Like, because there were women in Hollywood who did it before that, but it was a big struggle. Like, Judy Garland tried it. Shirley Temple tried it. We've talked about so many women who tried it. And I feel like Natalie Wood is very well-known as an adult and Mm -hmm. kind of well-known as a child. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think you actually kind of forget that she'd been working in the industry since she was four years old. Like a little baby baby. Yeah. Like, because she's just too much of a hottie hottie. Too much. So, the affair between her and Ray didn't last too long after production wrapped up. And then she became a bit of a party girl. Even having a brief fling with Elvis Presley. (laughs) To which Why she not? said, he can sing, but he can't do much else. <gasps> that sounds right to me, actually. I don't doubt it one bit. I read a couple books about him. He doesn't seem that great, honestly. <laughs> so um, then she moved on to a man named Scott Marlowe. He was an 18-year-old actor. They had a swift, serious relationship and planned to get married on Natalie's 18th birthday wild natalie even announced their engagement in the newspaper with the saying with her saying i've never loved any other man (gasps) but maria wasn't having it so she went behind natalie's back i'm kind of tired of warner brothers me too and she warned them that scott was only using natalie to boost his own career and that this marriage would be bad for business so warner brothers press department made their own announcement saying that Natalie Wood is demanding that her fiancé, Scott, be cast in her next movie and signed this really crazy contract, which wasn't true. But the backlash was so severe for the young couple that they ended up breaking up. So instead of getting married on her 18th birthday, she would go on her first date with the man who some people say murdered her, 26-year-old Robert Wagner, a.k.a. R.J. So that was his name among his, like, friends, R.J. They attended a movie premiere together, later claiming that it was this romantic fate. Natalie had always been in love with him, but from afar, because he was an older guy. But in reality, the entire thing was arranged by Warner Brothers. 
The, they do that all the time. <laughs> yes, they, they send do. They did people it, on dates. They did it so much to Judy Garland. I always and they did it her. to Marilyn Monroe. Mm-hmm. They 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 arrange a date for someone so that two of their leading stars are out in public and make the tabloids. Dude, it's fucked up. And everybody knows it, and they know it's not a real date. Yeah. But the real but date, real feelings. Yeah, yeah, and like the real date did turn into real feelings, and the two were engaged about a year and a half later on Ugh. December sixth, nineteen fifty-seven. That's the day I met Jake. But nineteen ninety-seven. Really, December sixth. Yeah. How do you know that? Because that's the day I started open Bible because I was homeschooled for two years. Sometimes I'm like amazed by your brain that you can remember those things. I just. I can't remember how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a really like important day to me. I like wet. It was like after being at home for two years, you finally get to go back to school. Wow. Like you can read enough that you're allowed to go back to school. Do you make Jake have sex with you? Not make. No, yeah, not yeah, never yeah, make. Yeah. But like, um, I don't know. Do you guys I, do something special on that day? No, I don't think we do. We both know that's the day, but we that we met, but. He also fell in love with me, and I was like, ugh. <laughs> so, I mean, he should make me celebrate. I make him celebrate everything. I'll be like, I walked today. Can you buy me flowers? <laughs> He'll be like, okay, Allie, I hate you. <laughs> no, we don't, but we should. Thank you for giving me a reason to celebrate. Here's a reason. <laughs> Halfway between the- <laughs> Your birthday and Christmas. I know. Look, there are so many days for me to celebrate that time of year that I just need to do it. <laughs> there are many. Um, so. Perfect. Now you know that about me as well. You've learned so many things about me I, tonight. I'm, <laughs> I thought I knew you. <laughs> Shut up. People will even be like, you know Allie really well. And I'm like, really? Because I don't think I do. <laughs> I look- there's a lot of things I don't I'm know. I'm holding back so you can all buy my book. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Appreciate and, that. And it'll be interesting. I'm trying to save it all. Uh, so they're engaged on December 6th. Mm. And they were married just 22 days later on December 28th in Scottsdale, Arizona. Like right after Christmas. Who knows? I don't know why. Scottsdale, Arizona. And the young couple honeymooned in. Do you want to guess it? Do we all want to guess it? Chicago. Oh, the Obamas are there. Okay, friends. I <laughs> honeymooned in New England, and I was like, is this sad? And then, we went to Mexico. But that's like exotic. You know what I'm saying? Is like it? a fun beach town where okay, like yeah, you're yeah. like, I look good in a bathing suit now because I've been getting ready for my wedding, and now I'm going to go to a place where I'm in a bathing suit. Oh. I was in a place where only coats were acceptable. I, was I went to New England in the fall. My honeymoon. I went to New England in the fall. I actually would prefer that. Really? To Mexico, yeah. Well, I mean, I did have a very good time. But anyways, they went to Chicago. Perfect. I like Chicago. It's a great town. Not a honeymoon town. Chicago. Chicago. Any fans of Victorious will know what I'm talking about. Yep. Your daughter's being two of them. Mm. Natalie was 19 years old. Somebody call Ariana Grande. And the public <laughs> was thrilled. They were America's it couple. P.S. I hope Ariana Grande's marriage is doing well. But unfortunately. She's ponytail up. It was not paradise behind closed doors. No. Unlike it is for Ariana Grande. She's a wonderful pair. 
RJ was constantly jealous of Natalie's career and resentful that his career was in a bit of a slump. And after the success of Rebel Without a Cause, Natalie was given a seven-year contract with Warner Brothers, which meant a little more stability, but still not quite enough agency. She didn't like that she was forced to do whatever movies the studio said. Especially since they seem to be all fluff girlfriend roles. She goes, okay, like, I know I was like the girlfriend of Rebel Without a Cause, but like, I don't need to be only doing that. And she really hated that they made her do a movie that she didn't like with her husband, RJ. It was called All the Fine Young Cannibals. And it was just as bad as the title. It was a total flop. It was a bad movie. And she knew it from reading the script, but she didn't have any power. She just felt like she was losing that little bit of power that she had gained. And, you know, she was just really frustrated. But then she had her next big hit. It was called Splendor in the Grass. And she starred opposite Warren Beatty, who was a huge star. Big old star. She received her second Oscar nomination for this role. Not. So in order to stand up for herself a bit more, she went on strike, demanding that she be able to pick at least some of the movies that she wanted to do, which worked out well for her because the first movie she picked out of this new deal was West Side Story. (gasps) Which was great for Natalie because the director, he was on the same exact wavelength after seeing her in Splendor. And it's funny because I'm like, how fucked up is it that her main, like, thing that she's known for is the character of Maria, which is her mother's name. (laughs) That's so crazy. I don't know. I feel like I know her more from Miracle on 34th Street. (laughs) Like, that's the thing for me that it's like, oh, yes, baby. Oh, for me, it's West Side Story. Yeah. I I mean, I know. I love West Side Story. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the movie was difficult for her, especially since it was a musical and she was not a trained singer or a dancer. She tried really, really hard to sing the songs, but she just didn't have the pipes for it yeah she just didn't you know i mean that's the high notes in that are like a trained opera singer would have a hard time with like yeah. the songs it's are a musical. yeah so they had to replace her voice with marnie nixon who is the singing voice of so many famous roles including ding 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 from last week audrey hepburn and my fair lady yep. Deborah Kerr in The King and I, Marilyn Monroe in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and she does Rita Moreno's harmony part in the song uh, tonight. Like, she does, like, the high mm-hmm. pitch. Not tonight. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. The one at the end. Well, and it's, like, that's the thing. I am obsessed with the fact that, like, Natalie Wood and Rita Moreno are acting together because, obviously, HOTR alum, mm-hmm. a lot of the women you just mentioned, mm-hmm. Audrey Hepburn... Marilyn Monroe, like these women all existed together. Yes, they did in the same fucked up studio situation. And it's so important because, I mean, I think today these women would have banded together and asked for more. But back then, women were encouraged to ignore one. We're still encouraged. Oh, yeah. To ignore one another so that we can't band together. Yeah, they were pitted against each other. Oh, yeah. In a really severe way. And so even though she was disappointed that she couldn't sing in the movie, the movie was obviously 
a major hit. And this was huge for her career. I mean, this movie was ginormous. It won so many Oscar nominations. I think she was disappointed that she didn't get nominated for Best Actress for the film. Right. But we know that Rita Moreno won Best Supporting, which was so great. Um, then in 1962, she chose the movie Gypsy, which told the story of real life famous exotic dancer Gypsy Rose Lee, who now I want to cover. Shit. Who was, this character was struggling with escaping a controlling relationship with her mother. Wonder what spoke to her in that role. <laughs> but the real important part of the movie Gypsy was that Natalie got to sing. And she was so excited because she does have a good singing voice. It's just not West Side Story caliber. Hmm. Then she did a movie called Love with the Proper Stranger with Steve McQueen and got her third Oscar nomination. But the higher her star rose, the more RJ resented her. And it all became too much. They separated in 1961 and were officially divorced in 1962. After this breakup, Natalie dated Warren Beatty for a couple of years. They had a very intense relationship. Um, but then they broke it off. Then she dated Michael Caine, the best Alfred of the Batman saga. Shit. And he's also 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Mm -hmm. And, okay. Michael Caine's wonderful. Can we also get back to the Muppet Babies with Michael Caine? Sure. Because okay. so, he was in a Christmas Carol. So he's in a Christmas Carol. So they say to Michael Caine, they pitch him on this, and they say, we want you to play Scrooge in Muppet Babies. And he says... I will do it, but you need to know that I am going to play it as if I am on a Shakespearean stage. And I am not going to wink at the camera. I'm not. And he has been voted the best ever Scrooge. Because he is. Because he played it deadly serious. So serious with the babies, the little Muppets. He played it as if he was acting with other humans. And it is so good. It is. It's so good. It is I, Charles Dickens good. Yeah. I hope there's not something secret that I don't know about Michael Caine because I'm going to say, God bless that man. Yo, same. Oh, Yo, same. God. I wish Michael that Caine. him and Rita, not Rita, Natalia, Natasha, Natalie. Natalie. Dear God, <laughs> I'm getting confused on her name. <laughs> oh my God. I this wish, is like the Black Widow. It's all yes, her name. I wish he and Natalie had worked out because no, I love but, him. I, I mean, I am so happy for his success. Unless there's something creepy, I don't know. I know. That's what I'm, I'm so like worried about saying anyone's an angel these days hmm. because I'm like, I don't know what I don't know. Yeah, but you also know what? Like, we talk a lot of great things about women and shit things about women. We can do that about men, too. Like, Michael Caine did some great things, and if he ended up being shitty, then we'll find that out. We'll figure it then out. Then we'll know. And then we'll all talk then about we'll it. Then we'll know. Okay. <laughs> so then she was engaged to a shoe designer for a bit. Um... <laughs> they didn't get married. But the party girl lifestyle, mixed with her crazy work schedule was starting to drain on her. In the mid to late 60s, she had a lot of flops. Just uh -oh. movie after movie after movie that were not doing well. Because, again, she could only choose one a year. So all the rest that she was doing were not good. And then she was even named the worst actress in America by the Harvard Lampoon. 
Ugh, shut up, Harvard. She was very hurt, but she was always told to put a brave face on, and she always wanted to be the cool girl in the room. So she went to the Lampoon in person to graciously accept her award, which, like, most people didn't do. Oh, Holly Berry did that at the Razzie. Yes, oh, I was at thinking that at the Razzie. She accepted it. For Catwoman. But, you know, and it sucks because that's the whole problem here. Natalie's like, yeah, I'm the worst actress in America. Isn't that so funny? But she's not fucking doing okay. But she wasn't letting anyone know. She still felt like Natasha at home, but she had to be Natalie Wood in public. And in 1966, it all became too much, and she overdosed on pills. Thankfully, she was rushed to the hospital and she was resuscitated, but this was a big wake-up call for her. Natalie started to get more into therapy, and she started to take control over her life again. She even paid Warner Brothers $175,000 to get out of her contract. She's like, I don't want to be beholden to you anymore. She's like, if I'm going to work, I want to choose to work. I don't want you to force me to work. This is ridiculous. She's been forced to work since she was five years old. Yeah. And then she fired her entire staff. Good. She's like, you all fucking let this happen to me. You were encouraging it. So mm-hmm. fuck you. You're fired. I hate it. And yeah. She just started to take care of herself. And when she eventually did go back to filming movies, she demanded time during her filming schedules to see her therapist. She's like, no, I deserve some time in the day or the week or whatever to talk to someone about all these things because this is fucked up. Yeah. And this was, this would eventually open up more resources for actors now to seek mental health. Because she was a big supporter and advocate of actors having more access to, like, mental health, you know, like therapy and whatever. She was like, no, we need time for ourselves. Because that was something that studios didn't care about. They saw them as workhorses. Well, it's something a lot of jobs don't care about. But when you're in the public eye, Mm -hmm. it is more important because you have to remember who you are. Yeah. So, like, I think all businesses should very readily have availability to mental health for their employees. It's not like, oh, if you're famous, it's harder for you. Yeah. It's like any person should have a mental health, you know, helper. But also it's like if if you're in the public eye, so many people are making you feel so many things. Mm -hmm. It's it's terrible. I mean, you experienced it on like, and I experienced it just on like a little bit of Twitter. Yeah. A little bit. Ugh, there was a bad comment one time that made me stay in bed all day. And yeah. like, we're on the, like the lowest, lowest tier of like, it's yeah. just like when we're a like stranger says people. something bad about you, yeah. it's like, you feel so helpless. Or like and that's somebody gives you the life. finger in traffic and you're just Ugh, like, you feel so bad all day. day. And then it's like this woman, Natalie Wood is feeling that all day and there isn't anybody like today. People on Twitter will defend you. They'll yeah. be like, no, that's not what they meant. Like. Let me help you. There's nobody there for Natalie. Mm -mm. Not even her mom. No one. So. Then she meets British producer Richard Gregson. And Mm. she decides that she is going to really focus on this relationship. And she takes a break from acting. In 1969, the two married after dating for nearly three years. 
And she ends up making her first movie around this time. So she had not made a movie for about two and a half, three years. Mm. This is a big break for her. It was her big entrance into the swinging 60s. It was a film called Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. And it was about two suburban couples trying to spice up their marriage by swinging together. (gasps) Whoa! Big story! (sighs) The movie was a hit and... So now she's like, my movie's a hit. I'm married to someone that I love. Like, things are really looking up. And then she had her first child, Mm. a daughter who was born in 1970, who she named Natasha. The name that she wasn't called. She wasn't called, but it was her name, which I think is so gorgeous that... She named her daughter that. We need to go back to women naming their kids after themselves. Yes. Lorelai the second. Come on. Men do that. Yes. Where are we? (sighs) Natasha was Natalie's first child and it was love at first sight. She was so happy to be a mother that she threw all of her attention on her, but thankfully not in the way that her own mother had done to her. (laughs) But there is one problem with Natalie's newfound happiness. Her husband didn't like that she was suddenly paying so much attention to this baby and ignoring him and his daughters from his previous marriage. And he's getting really bitter. He said once Natasha came along, there wasn't room for anyone else. So in response, he had an affair with Natalie's secretary and that they split up in 1971. Because that's not the proper response of like you had a baby, so I'm gonna have an affair with your fucking personal assistant. Like what the fuck? I mean, I absolutely hate when I hear this story a lot when men get jealous that their wives are spending too much attention on the baby. Like the correct response is, "Can I help you with the baby? Mm -hmm. Like, can I can I watch the baby?" Men are literally sorry, men. You are babysitters mm-hmm. at that point. If you are not watching the child 50% of the time, yeah. then you're a babysitter. You're a babysitter. You need to help out. That's bullshit. It's so fucked. And I hate that excuse of like, oh, she loved the kid too much, so I had to have an affair. It's like, fuck you. You were going to have an affair anyways. I wouldn't be surprised like, if this was your first one. Her cervix were scratched up because yeah. she just birthed the fucking brain yeah. and like all the, the innards. Gross. So... After that marriage ended, she had a short-lived romance with future California governor, Jerry Brown, not Arnold Schwarzenegger. I was hoping Ronald Reagan, but I was why'd, you go with, why'd you go with Arnold Schwarzenegger? Wrong time period. Very wrong time period. He's the only <laughs> governor of California that I've ever known. Except for Ronald Reagan. I did not know he was governor of California until <laughs> I did this research. I'm obsessed with you for that. Your parents love Ronald Reagan. I didn't know that. I did not. I literally thought he went straight from actor to president. I did not know he was the governor. Schwarzenegger was trying really hard to follow in his footsteps. He was trying. We were. He was on the tracks. But and then he became a Trump supporter. We all said (laughs) Paul's friend. It's so funny because like. You know, Robert Wagner, you know, whatever, like he's like involved in her death. And like people were like, he got away with it because he like him and Ronald Reagan made a show in the fucking forties. And it's like, hmm. Or not the forties. I'm okay. Nobody this cares is the about point the point where I'm riffing. Uh, I'm not on my script. We can riff. We can riff. 
Okay. But yeah, they're like, it's because he's friends with Ronald Reagan. And I'm like, mm, I don't think Ronald Reagan was that keen to help Robert Wagner. No, like, yeah. <laughs> and also Arnold Schwarzenegger was not born in the United States. So he could never he be He wasn't president. even here yet. So, but he couldn't ever be president. So even if he wanted to, oh, that's right. Yeah, True you got to be thirty-five and born here, like me, like me. So if anybody needs a right, oh, I'm not thirty-five. <laughs> you're close. I'm close. No, you're not. No, I'm not. <laughs> you're not Again, even, I don't know how old I am. You're not guys. even thirty yet. I'm. I'm. Prime. You're primed to be the president. I'm like, if you you're voted the exact me in, right age. if you voted me in right now, I would be the youngest president ever. I'd beat Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> Somebody's got to. Somebody's it won't be me. Because <laughs> the next president's going to be Kamala Harris. Let's all just so, be fine with that. <laughs> after Jerry Brown. Jer. She resumed her relationship with Robert Wagner, a.k.a. RJ, right. January 1972. They remarried within six months on July 16th aboard it's a ship birthday. called the Ramblin' Rose. I thought that was Adam Levine's child. <laughs> Guys, do you remember when he named his daughter Dusty Rose? It's still what a, a mistake. Still a thing. Um, anchored off the Paradise Cove in Malibu. This time around, Natalie was really trying to focus on her family. They even bought a boat. I'm sorry, a yacht oh. to spend time on called The Splendor, named after Natalie's hit movie. It seems strange that a woman with a huge phobia of water would buy a boat, but her sister explained it. She said Natalie could kind of separate it in her mind because she said, well, the boat's in the water. I'm not. <laughs> so she just didn't like touching the water. Yeah. Same. So, but when she did go back to work after kind of taking this long break, it didn't feel as natural as it did before. So she's kind of going into a movie slump. None of her projects are really taking off. But this time around, RJ's career is at an all-time high because he had found success on the TV show Heart to Heart, which is great for RJ because he felt like the big man on campus again. But it was tough for Natalie because she was entering middle age and she was worried that her career was at a dead end because Hollywood has famously turned an eye blind eye to women in their middle age it's like it's just a weird time period especially for actresses, especially at this like time this time in history but then in 1981 she started working on a promising new film called brainstorm it was a science fiction drama where she would star alongside the promising young actor who had just won an academy award christopher walken <gasps> mm-hmm Filming took a break for Thanksgiving, so Natalie was able to return home to California, and her and RJ decided that they would take their boat out for a little trip to one of their favorite places, Catalina Island, with Natalie's new friend and co-star Christopher Walken. But things would soon take a dark turn. On Sunday, November 29th, 1981, around 7.30 a.m., Natalie Wood's body was found 200 yards off the coast of Catalina Island and about a mile away from the boat. She was 43 years old. She was found wearing a thin nightgown, wool socks, and a red coat. The dinghy of the boat was found in another part of the water, away from her body, 
The key was in the ignition, but it was turned off and the oars were tied to the boat so they had not been used. Her death was quickly labeled an accidental drowning, but over the years, people had come to suspect that there was more to the story. In 2011, the case was officially reopened after the ship's captain, Dennis Davern, said that in 1981, he lied to investigators. The story he told them about what happened that night was not true. So what happened to Natalie Wood? Well, we're not 100% sure still, but we're going to go through the night leading up to her death and some of the inconsistencies with the stories and where it is now. So from what we can piece together, the weekend went like this. Friday night, they're hanging out, but the water's really rough. So Natalie and the boat's captain, Dennis, they go to shore to stay in a hotel for the night. This story was later rectified to say that she really left the boat because of an awful fight she was having with RJ, which other people confirmed. So it wasn't the storm. It was because she was having a fight with RJ. The next day, Saturday, everyone had calmed down. They had a really nice day on the water. The four of them, you know, RJ, Christopher Walken, Natalie, and Dennis all went out to dinner on the island. Things started out fine, but they quickly got very tense. Dennis described RJ as having a simmering rage, which was being made worse by the copious amounts of alcohol the group was consuming. Dennis felt that it was because Natalie and Christopher Walken were flirting a bit and enjoying some inside jokes that they had had on the set of the movie that they were filming. I mean, they just spent the past couple months together. Like, they were obviously very friends. Close. They were friends. Coworkers. Even one of the waiters described RJ as a, quote, jealous schmoo. <laughs> Things got heated. Natalie threw a glass against the wall at some point, and many restaurant patrons and employees testified that things were not okay with that group. So they eventually leave, and they go back on the boat around 10 p.m. They were so drunk, so irate, that the manager of the restaurant called the harbor captain and said, just to let you know, Natalie Wood and Robert Wagner and Christopher Walken are very, very wasted. They're going back to their boat, so just, like, keep an eye on them. So they go back to the boat around 10 p.m. They have more drinks, and the arguing starts up again. RJ starts to complain that Natalie is away from home too much. She's hurting their children. She's not a good mother. She's not a good wife. Christopher Walken says that at this time... He, like, stood up for Natalie and was like, look, she's an important person. She deserves to have her own career. But then he just had to get out of there. So he leaves to get some fresh air. And he said, when I came back, everything was fine and everyone was apologizing. Natalie went to bed. The three men stayed up a little longer, drinking and hanging out. But when RJ went to the room a few hours later, he noticed that she was missing. And he noticed that the dinghy to the boat was gone. RJ said that the last time he saw Natalie was around 10.45 p.m., and she went missing sometime between then and midnight. But there are no reports of him calling for help until 1.30 a.m. That's hours and hours later. Mm -hmm. 
He said, well, I didn't call for help because I thought that she had just taken the dinghy into town. And then once it was found out that, you know, she had drowned, you know, and then he was like, okay, well, I have to come up with like a different theory of like why Natalie would be in the dinghy. He said, well, Natalie was having a hard time sleeping because the dinghy was banging against the boat. So she went out and, you know, she's probably just trying to like retie the dinghy to the boat and she slipped and fell into the water. People accepted this theory. The autopsy report labeled her death an accident, and that seemed to be it for about three decades. But when Dennis, the captain of the boat, started to recant his version of the night, and more evidence and more witnesses started to come forward, this tidy story didn't seem to match up. People always had questions about this dinghy story. Why would Natalie even feel the need to retie the dinghy herself? Never. Dennis always did it. And obviously, Natalie didn't have a problem asking Dennis for help because just the night before, she asked him to go ashore just because, you know, her and RJ had had a fight or the sea was rough. She didn't have a problem asking this man that she employed to use the dinghy to get her off this boat. Right. She did not have a problem. She with wouldn't that. have done it by herself. Wouldn't have done it by herself. Dennis also said that the story of the fight being over and Natalie going to bed was not true. The fight between Natalie and RJ continued for quite some time. There was even some speculation that the fight came from Natalie discovering that RJ and Christopher Walken were sleeping together. And I don't even know, I almost didn't mention it because it just doesn't line up with any of the testimony that like, RJ was jealous of Natalie and Walken. Like, Mm -hmm. he thought that they were having an affair. So I don't think that RJ and Christopher Walken were sleeping together. But that whole thing, I think, came about because I forgot to mention this earlier, but one of the reasons given for their initial split 11 years before was that Natalie walked in on him and a butler having sex. And RJ was uh, quietly bisexual, people think. Okay, but even so, a lot of people in that time period would have done a lot to hide their identity, their sexual identity. Mm -hmm. So, like, if that is the case, you know, RJ and or Christopher Walken could have really wanted to hide that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we know that RJ, because, like, RJ denies any of, like, all of these stories all the time. Mm -hmm. Like, but... The story of him and the butler is a little more credible, but the story of him and Walken, I think, kind of came out of that story because it doesn't really seem plausible to me that they were doing anything because, right. like, it seemed like he was just, like, pissed at Christopher Walken the entire trip. Right. It's like, and even if they were bisexual, it doesn't mean they were attracted to each other. Right. Exactly. That's not what that means. Yeah. So then there was another piece of crucial testimony that came out. A family on a nearby boat said that they heard a woman screaming for help in the night. They said they tried to call the harbor master, but no one was answering. And then there was another boat nearby who said that they heard the couple fighting, and that kind of backed up Dennis's timeline of events. Because obviously, like, you know, we'll get to it, but Dennis is a little iffy. Because, <laughs> like, to, just to be clear, like, We need to take every witness and every player in this story with a grain of salt, whether Mm. it's the people who like, 
oh yeah, I was on a boat nearby like Natalie Wood when she died. And like, or you have like Dennis Daver and the captain. I mean, who sold his story to tabloids and collaborated right. on a book about the event, you know? At some point it doesn't matter. But, you know, so it's like he could have some financial motive, but also like the way that he tells the story does make more sense with the other things that we know. So it's hard to really know what's true and what's not. But we know that Dennis also said that RJ put off calling anyone for help, which lines up with the fact that the call wasn't put out until 1.30. And apparently... That call was made to people on land who he was like, oh, can you look for Natalie in town? Like, you know, she's missing. I think she took a dinghy to town, which doesn't make any sense because she didn't know how to operate the dinghy. So, like, even him just saying that, like, as a potential theory of like, oh, that's what I was thinking at the time. That doesn't make sense. Like, you knew she didn't know how to do that boat. She didn't know how to operate it. So... The Coast Guard was I mean, I will say, when mm-hmm. when I was lost in Vegas, <laughs> when Jake called the police and they asked how long I was missing, he lied. Really? He said longer because he knew they wouldn't take him seriously if mm-hmm. he said a short period of time. So I think there yeah. is that idea that, like, somebody's not going to believe you if you're like, my wife's been gone for two hours. They're like, yeah. okay. Yeah. But it's weird because he's doing the opposite. Right. You it, know what it I'm is saying? Weird. Like, <laughs> I just think that like there is a way that you present the story and mm-hmm. there's what's happening and it's traumatic either way. Oh, it is. Like, I mean, of course he may be a murderer, <laughs> but also it's like if he isn't a murderer, he just was reacting to being drunk on a boat at night, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So da 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 Coast Guards called at 3.30 a.m., and after they found her and notified Wagner, um, they told him that you have to come and identify the body. And he said, I can't, so he sent Dennis, the captain, to do it. This is something that I've always had a problem with because (laughs) I just... I don't think like people are like, what is your wife? Wouldn't you want to go and like identify the body? And it's like, it's, and it's interesting because I've always had a problem with this part of the story. Right. And it's even more concrete now that you have told Amy's story because it's like, that is such a traumatic thing to ask anyone to do, mm. to ask someone to identify the per- the body of a person that they love. And like maybe to you who's not in the like the situation, like yeah, it might seem like yeah, just go do it. That's the person you love. You owe that to them, right? It's pragmatic. But what you don't know what's going on until you're faced with that situation. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Robert didn't, and I people use that to point towards his guilt. But I, and also I think, don't think that it does. No, because I also think there's a lot of people who could have identified Natalie Wood. Yeah. You know what I'm She's saying? A famous star. Like it's not. It's not like you're the only person who knew that person. Yeah. It's not like they're they're burnt and their dental records are it. Mm-hmm. Like that's a really famous celebrity. Yeah. So. Anyways, so apparently though, also like RJ left the island very quickly after, and some people say that he told the men on the boat to stick to their story. The case was closed two weeks 
after Natalie's death, which is not long enough. Not long. And that's what they did for a long time. They stuck to their story until Dennis started talking. Then when they reopened the case in 2011 and looked back on certain items, such as the autopsy, they noticed that some things hadn't really been disclosed. It hadn't been disclosed that there were 38 bruises all over Natalie's body. And there was another small detail. Her bladder was full, which means she was most likely unconscious when her body went into the water. Clear signs of an altercation, a physical altercation before her drowning. But the coroner didn't even scrape under her fingernails to see if there were any defensive, you know, tissues from her scratching her attacker. There was just nothing like that done to see if maybe Natalie had put up any kind of fight. Now, there are some other weird things about the autopsy and the guy who did it, but there's just too much hearsay to go into, and I'm just not going to get into it because there's literally a 15-part podcast series about this. So too much. if you want to get into the nitty-gritty details, like I really encourage you to go do that. Uh, Christopher Walken has largely been cleared. He has always been very cooperative with authorities, and anytime they ask him to speak with them, he does RJ, on the other hand, refuses to cooperate. Even when he was officially made a person of interest in 2018, he would not sit down with the police to answer any of the new questions that they had. Now, again, there are a lot of avenues to take, rabbit holes, theories, whatever, and you can get into that into the documentaries and the podcasts that talk about it, like Fatal Voyage. But the fact is, there's a lot going on and it's a lot of he said, she said, and especially because there are three men on the boat that survived a lot of he said, he said, he said. (laughs) So we really don't know who's talking for money and who has a guilty conscience. Mm. Personally, I think that this case is a mix of Occam's razor and he doth protest too much. I think that the simplest answer is true. I think that this was a horrible accident. I don't think that Robert Wagner murdered her, but I also think that they were in an altercation and he knows exactly how the accident occurred, but he's not saying anything. And that's why I think he says so much that he's innocent because I think he does know, but I think that he doesn't want us to know that he knows. I mean, that sounds right to me. Yeah, but I also, I don't think that he's a cold-blooded murderer who pushed his wife off a boat. No. I don't think that. Mm. Natalie Wood was buried in Westwood Village Memorial Park Cemetery in Los Angeles. Her pallbearers included Frank Sinatra, Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly, Laurence Olivier, and Gregory Peck. Just come you on. Mean my dream come crew? on. My, dr- my dream, dream pallbearers. <laughs> <laughs> wow, what a dark turn. <laughs> Her mother was devastated when Natalie died. Mm-hmm. Lana said she was never the same. But I think also in some sick way, she loved the mysterious nature of her daughter's death. Because it cemented Natalie's name in the tabloids. Yeah. Tabloids. She was quoted sometime after Natalie's death saying, God made her, but I invented her. Oh, God. Honestly. 
Natalie never did win an Oscar, but that doesn't mean she is any less of a Hollywood legend and an icon. And not just because she died in a tragic way, but because she was a talented actress, because she left Hollywood better than she found it, because she was a hard worker who loved her children, and she was a survivor. And that's the story of Natalie Wood. Wow. Really long. Really intense. (laughs) But I think both of these women's stories were really long and really intense. They were. Like, more than I expected. Yeah. So let's get right into it. Let's get into the story of both of these women in a little segment we like to call Just the Two of Us. I mean, the beginning of their life is so fucking similar. They're immigrants. Their their parents are immigrants. Second of three children, which I thought was really weird. They're in California. Mm -hmm. They're, I mean, it is very interesting that they took this path. I mean, the big difference is that uh, Amy couldn't hide behind being white. Yeah. So that's a very big difference. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I mean, their moms were struggling. Their moms are big parts of their stories. Yes, their moms were huge parts of their stories. Oh, uh, but Amy comes around. Yeah. And it's funny because Natalie, I didn't include this in the story because I wasn't sure where to put it, but like Natalie did try to do that. When she had her daughter, she invited her mom to come live with her and help her take care of the kid. And like it did not take long for her to kick her mother out because her mom was trying to do the same thing to this baby. Right. Trying right. to make her into a child star. And like her, like, Natalie was like, I can't fucking do this. So it's the difference of like, I feel like Amy got to know her mom and realized that like she was maybe better than she, not better, like she understood her more. She realized her mom was a person. She realized her mom was a person and Natalie never got that. And that really bums me out because she tried. She was like, maybe once I have a kid, I can bring her back into my life and like we can reach some deeper understanding, but that didn't happen. Yeah. One thing I love is like, so me and my mom, we definitely fight a lot, but we talk on the phone every day for like, you know, 30 minutes to an hour every day without fail, no matter what. Um, and I just, one thing that Amy said is she was like, my mom and I have a symbiotic relationship Mm. where we're addicted to each other's faults. And I just like, I feel that with my mom so much. Like I pick on her openly. She picks on me openly, but like I am addicted to her drama. Like I love it. I just need to hear, I want to be a part of it. And I think that what happened with Natalie is that she realized that her mental health is wrapped up in her mom's mental health, which is wrapped up in her grandmother's mental health. Mm -hmm. It is a multi-generational trauma that took place. And like that happens with women. Yeah. Well, it's interesting too, because I feel like with Amy, she found out the true story of her mother's upbringing and then it shed a, a greater light. Natalie's mother, I don't think ever came clean about what really the, what the fuck happened to her? Why are you acting like that? Because she would tell people all these lies. Yeah. You know, I'd be like, mm-hmm. we're a part of the Romanovs. I danced, I, I danced in the Russian ballet. And like, it's like, that's not true. Right. What did so, happen? I think that's also a big part of like, you know, their mom is so central to who they became. But I think it's one of the big differences that like Amy's mom 
did end up being honest with her daughter and Maria never did. I don't think she was ever really honest with Natasha, even Natasha, fuck Natalie, but she was Natasha. Yeah. In a sense, you know, and it's funny too, that like we have these two women with like kind of alternative, alternative personas, you know, cause like Amy wrote as herself as this character in this book. And Natalie always thought of herself as Natasha. Cause that was her name for when she was like one to four. She was like, yeah, I was a little girl named Natasha. And then all of a sudden I was Natalie and I was American. And I kind of feel like there's also this pressure from their parents to be very American, mm. which was very interesting to me. Cause like Amy was taught to be very American, but also like not to forget her like Chinese heritage, carry the culture. Yeah. Carry the culture. And and then she feels responsible for it. Whereas, you know, Natalie, she was like, yeah, I was then Natalie Wood and I was American. And I, then I was Puerto Rican for a bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, she looked white enough to pass. Yeah. You know, she mm-hmm. could do what she needed to do. I, I think they both, they carried a burden. Yeah. I, I know like Amy carried a burden. I think she still carries a burden of the Chinese American heritage whenever she talks about it. I mean, She's still doing public speeches today about how she feels about yeah. this. And then it's like Natalie Wood, she did carry a burden. Yeah. She carried the burden of her family. She was the child who was supporting an entire group of people all in her own. Mm-hmm. She was expected to act and do and be a very certain way, not only for her family, but for contract contracts yeah. as a child. And then these, like, future husbands who, like, couldn't yeah. deal with her being her own person. Right. God you bless know? Lou. God, Lou was the best. I wish that Natalie had a Lou. Mm. Because, you know, like like you were saying, like, Amy's written a lot of stuff afterwards. Like, nothing quite as successful as the Joy Luck Club. But, like, you know, that's, like, the up and downs of any kind of artistic career. And, like, Natalie had those, but she didn't have anyone strong to weather that storm with Mm -hmm. you know like i think about and lou was never jealous either no rj was jealous rj was glad the second time they were married because he was on you know this like very popular tv show and natalie was making flop movies and it's like that's a fucked up thing to be excited about when your spouse is failing and you are having some success like And I just think that's the difference, another difference. And I'm glad that Amy has that supportive partner. And I wish that Natalie had found that, you know, Mm. because some times are going to be better than others. Some movies, some books are going to sell better than others. But if you have a partner who's not supporting you through any of those times, that fucking sucks. It sucks. Yeah. But I don't know. I... There was a lot just so similar in their relationships with their moms and their stories. And I, I was not expecting that. (laughs) I actually, uh, I expected by the end of the story to hate Amy's mom and I loved her. Yeah. Like in the beginning I was really, I was like, this woman is terrible. And then I realized that this woman had no mental health counseling and that that's not fair. Yeah. Now, it's not fair what she did to Amy or her son or her husband or her other kids, but, like, there are a lot of people who do not 
get the treatment they need and that's not their fault it's not their fault and it's hard because I want to have more sympathy for Maria but she just stuck to her guns until the very end yeah and that's what kind of bugs me it's like mental health is not your fault but it is your responsibility and full agree you know I, I mean we're having that problem you know we're talking about Casey's family a lot my my husband aka fiance <laughs> And, like, his grandmother is uh, a narcissist, and it's really hard. And, like, we're in a crisis right now. Like, he's in a crisis right now, or, like, she's cut out, like, suddenly cut out Casey's mom. And, like, mm. it's just hard because, like, she does this all the time. Mm-hmm. Where, like, she cuts people off because she's like, well, like, you didn't do the expected, the thing that I expected you to do. So, like, and you didn't even know that I wanted you to do this. But right. now because you didn't fulfill my expectations, I'm going to cut you out. Yeah, make a bulleted list. If you want it to happen, make a list. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's just hard. So, I don't know. Ooh. Both of these stories were... <laughs> yeah. They hard, they're hard and they hit home. They are. Are you ready to read some horoscopes? I am. What's your lady's horoscope? Okay. So, she was born February 19th in the 50s. And she is a Pisces. Ooh. So that's what my daughter is. Caroline's a Pisces. Caroline? She, she's early Oh, that March. makes sense because she's yeah. March. Mm-hmm. I always assume that Caroline and I have the same birthday, and I know that she is so far away from me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but just because we guys, look similar. We're so similar, yeah. <laughs> so um, if you were born in, uh, I think it's like 52 or something, as a, well, let me look at the exact, February 19th, 1952 says you are soft-spoken and have a gentleness about your personality your caring nature is very admirable you're sensitive and peace-loving you're sought after by many people you do not like to argue with people however you need to be firm when expressing your feelings interesting yeah because I do think that that's kind of correct in Amy's story because it's like she didn't want to rock the boat. She no. didn't want to have a fight with her mom. Mm-mm. And then, she, but she had to kind of come around to doing that. Had and to like, get around to she it. had to come to it. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Mm. So, Natalie Wood is a cancer, uh, being born on July 20th, 1938. Uh, and it says, You are a very sensitive person who is easily influenced by your environment. You are likely to be exceedingly protective of your feelings as well as the feelings of those to whom you are close. Emotions are strong in your nature. You approach life with many feelings and a strong nurturing tendency. Your moods are varied and changeable. Mm, That's Natalie. That is Natalie. But I also think that's like every human. Yeah. True, true, true. All right. All right. Are you ready to toast these women? I'm ready to toast. Who would you like to toast this evening? I just want to toast um, women who find what works for them. So I just think Amy found out what worked for her. She found out writing was good. She found out how to handle her mom. She found out where to live, what husband to have. And she's like, this is what works for me. Mm. Done. Perfect. Cheers to her. Cheers. Cheers. Ooh. All right. I am going to toast women who are more than just one story. I really despise that 
Natalie Wood is only featured on true crime podcasts. I hate it. I hate that the history chicks haven't done an episode on her yet. Maybe it's going to drop tomorrow. I don't know. But because her death was so complicated, so suspicious, so talked about, she gets lost in life. And that really fucking bugs me. Because she did so much for herself, for other people in Hollywood. She made changes. Like I said, she left Hollywood better than when she found it. She advocated for people to have more time for their mental health because she knew how fucking rough it was. She paid to get out of a contract that she was like, this is fucked up. And now, like, we don't have those types of contracts anymore. Studios don't own people anymore. And I have to think that Natalie Wood had something to do with that. So I want to toast women who are more than just the story that is constantly told about them. Cheers. Cheers. All right. What are you enjoying in pop culture this week? So this isn't going to be more happy. Okay. (laughs) So I read a book this week called It Ends With Us. Um, And it is a fictional story, but it is written by a woman whose um, mother was a part of domestic abuse. Mm. And this story is about a woman who is being um, abused domestically and then ends up with a man who is abusing her domestically. So her mom did it and she did it. And I will say I have never understood staying with a man, Mm -hmm. but I read this fictional book and I fell in love with this character. Mm -hmm. And then he starts beating her and she gives him a couple chances. I won't say exactly how many, but each time I was like, Oh, he's going to be better. Mm-hmm. I kept thinking in my head, mm-hmm. this very logical, smart, like woman, like, oh, no, he'll be fine. Like he said, he's sorry. And it was the first time in my life that I ever actually. And I know it's stupid because it's just a fiction book. I really, for the first time, was like, oh, I see why people stay. Yeah. Because that's always the question. It's like, well, why did you stay? And why it's not like, leave? That's an impossible thing to answer because it's something so personal. And I just, this. I, that's an incredible thing for a fictional book to get across then because yeah. I think that everybody should read that book then because I think it's one of the biggest reasons too that then like a lot of women don't report abuse because they're like well i'm gonna seem like an idiot because like he's so loving this has been happening for a while and yeah. now it's gonna be like well why didn't you leave when he first hit you and I, it's, it's mm. always so much more complicated it's it's something i never understood think. and i mean like it's really cool because even and this doesn't spoil anything but even his sister in the book is like look they're in-laws at that point she's like i'm his sister and i will say anything because i love you as a sister-in-law to get you to stay but as your best friend i will never speak to you again if you don't leave and it's like it's a whirlwind of emotions because you aren't just leaving a person you're leaving a family and i think people forget that so it's called it ends with us okay it is such a good book. It sounds amazing. The book, the follow-up book is coming out October 18th. Ooh. I've already bought it online. I'm ready Exciting. to read it. It is excellent. It's also a braided narrative because it has her mom's story, her story as a child, and her story as an adult. Interesting. So. Okay. 
everybody, it ends with us. You should read it. Get it on Audible. Read it in person. It's perfect. And I thought it fit really well with tonight because it is yeah. about multi-generational trauma. Well, you know, and that kind of reminds me of um, The Glass Castle. Ugh, how, yeah. you know, the author of The Glass Castle was like her memoir from her childhood. And it is kind of a complicated sort of like, no, I love my dad, but he was so fucked up. Yeah. And then the second story, Half Broke Horses, was about her grandmother. And it's, again, like that, like, taking it back to, like, this is generational shit we're talking about. You know, it's very interesting and important. Well, and it's also the reason I loved um, Encanto. I Mm, think a lot of, mm -hmm. I know a lot of um, Hispanic, Latina people were like, oh, my God, finally somebody's talking about our multi-generational trauma. And it's like. But that's all of our multi-generational trauma. Like, I I understand this is based around you, and I'm so, like, in love with it. But it's also, like, everybody has a black sheep that we're scared to talk about, but we all secretly gossip about, and it is breaking families. Yeah. Yeah. I know. (laughs) Do you? Bleep that out. Fire. I'll bleep Um, it out. I am going to. (laughs) Just kidding. They don't fucking listen. It's not this late. This late in the episode, no one's listening. No one's listening. (laughs) So I am going to take the opposite route. I'm going to just recommend something so delightful. Uh, It is not the whole movie West Side Story because that's sad. (laughs) But the scene in the movie where they are, the two groups are dancing at the gym is so delightful. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's this great thing where like you have these two separate groups of teens that fucking hate each other, Mm. but they don't have anywhere else to be, but this dance because they, all they want to do is dance. So they're at this gym. Mm -mm. And then the guy is like, no, I want to like bring the kids together. And he has them like all the, like the girls are on the inside, the boys are on the outside. And he goes like, you know, like go around until the music stop, like, like musical chairs. And then whoever you're standing in front of, you have to dance with them no matter who they are or what side they're on. Yep. And they stop, and all the kids, they like that's that point where they're reaching their arms across each other to like get to the partner who they came with. It's, right. It's so perfect. And it made me be like, man, that community leader was really trying, but it's a hard thing to do. <laughs> and then, you know, they go, Mambo, Mambo. And the music is so good, and they're dancing, and just these dances that these teens are doing are so fucking good. And they're crazy. And like, I just, I love the whole scene. So if like you're just into like watching really incredible group dancing scenes, go watch, just Google like gym dance scene west side story it's really great it's so good and the costumes are perfect and like i don't know i watched it a couple times today because i was like i don't understand how these kids are so good at dancing Mm -mm. don't get it so anyways that's it for us um we love you you're great find us everywhere (laughs) find us on patreon you can hear us in a couple minutes there we're gonna be quick tonight because it's a long one Mm -hmm. but um, you can find us on all the social medias. We're mm-hmm. happy you're here. And we love you. Mm-hmm. And uh, we want you to never forget. Oh, and also please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, that yeah. would be dope. Come on, where the hell are you? Please. Uh, but we also want you to never forget that well-behaved women hit the curve when they're parallel parking. Yes, every time. And they rarely make history. Good. Goodbye.
You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.